Michael Prince. Michael Prince. Where's Michael Prince? Hi, this is Michael Prince, studio engineer and producer with Michael Jackson, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJ Cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea is to uh, innovate, or else why, why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let it create itself, really. I know I do. And I love to entertain. That's that's one of my favorite things. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the MJ Cast. I'm James Allay. Today, I'm here with co hosts Jamin Bull and Charles Thompson. It's always been one of our missions at the MJ Cast to release special episodes which document the stories of people who knew and worked with the King of Pop, Michael Jackson. Today, we're incredibly fortunate to be interviewing one of Michael's key artistic collaborators, Michael Prince. Michael Prince worked with Michael from the mid-90s onwards, eventually becoming Michael's closest studio engineer, a man who Michael trusted to capture his most personal creative visions. From the History World Tour, to the Invincible album, to the beautiful charity single, What More Can I Give? And right up until This Is It and the final studio songs MJ was working on, Michael Prince was involved. Today we're going to learn all about what it was like to creatively collaborate with the King of Pop, Michael Prince. Welcome to the MJ cast. Oh, thanks very much, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's the, the honor is all ours. Uh, it's, it's, it's been something that uh, we've been dreaming about for a very long time, being able to have you on the show. We love talking to collaborators of Michael Jackson, so thank you so much. It's an honor. Michael Prince, you, you yeah. told us that... Uh, that uh, uh, MJ and uh, Brad and others refer to you as, as Michael Prince. Is that right? So uh, we're going to refer to you as Michael Prince as well. So <laughs> sounds good. We've got a lot of Michaels on this conversation. So, um, But tell us a little bit about your career um, before, before meeting MJ. Wow. Um, well, we can go back all the way to the 70s if you want. Um, uh, I, I moved to Los Angeles in 1974 uh, in between college years, my plan was to go back to Dallas and, and go to college. And I came here, uh, I brought all my musical equipment with me. I, I you know, people may not know I, I'm a musician as well. I play keyboards and guitar. And, um, I wanted to sort of check out the music scene here. This was the summer of 74. And I, uh, um, there was a thing that's before the internet called musicians contact service. And they're actually still around, but I think they're online now. And you went down there and filled out a little three-by-five card with your name and the kind of music you liked and what instruments you played. And then you just you would go home and wait for the phone to ring. And I got a phone call a few days later from some guys that had a rock band and they wanted a keyboard player. And uh, I, I thought, well, that could be fun. So uh, I went down and auditioned, and, and they liked me, and I liked them. And uh, to shorten all that up, they were a band that was just starting out called Legs Diamond. And I was with them. Well, we're still together, basically, although we haven't done an album in 10 years. We did uh, 11 albums, uh, got to tour mostly in America, but did do some international touring. And 
got to play in the 70s and 80s with some great bands like Kiss and Styx and Ted Nugent and Ario Speedwagon and Michael Schenker. And the names go on and on. In fact, I'll talk to my drummer who's got the best memory in the world. He'll mention a band. And I'll go, wow, they're really good. He goes, you know, we played with them, right? And I'll go, we did? You know, because there's just so many. You know, when you're out on tour, sometimes you'll do four shows with one act, and then you do two shows with another act, and then you fly somewhere and do one show with a band. So it, it was a great education. I got to do something I truly loved, which was write songs, and then actually get to play, uh, perform in front of crowds up to 30,000 people. And, and the little light bulb went off in my head when I was watching the first album, the second album, you know, and by the middle of the second album, I start, I'm asking questions like, well, why are you doing that? To, why are you doing, you know, that on that knob? What are you doing right now? Oh, I'm adjusting, you know, like the compressor. What's a compressor? You know, and so you let this stuff just start soaking in. And I, at that point, I had no intention of, of being an engineer or a producer, I just wanted to, you know, ask more and more questions, you know, as you sit there, sometimes you're bored, but um, uh, by about the third or fourth album, I sort of knew what was going on, you know, and, uh, and ended up producing mm, and mixing the last, I think, two or three albums that we did, uh, and we'll definitely produce the, and mix the, the next album if we do one more, uh, and, and I guess what that led me to was at some point, other people were asking me to engineer and mix their records, mostly like rock bands that I knew. And so in the early 90s, I bought enough equipment and held my breath and opened up a small studio, uh, much like the one uh, James has seen. Probably that was even a little smaller studio and um, got lucky and started getting calls right away, uh, mixed a lot of R&B projects um, some classical guitar stuff, uh, wrote, you know, for, uh, for film and television, uh, mixed an album for, um, you may not know the band outside of the U S but a band called Los Lobos, which were, uh, really, really good. Uh, they're a California band, most famous for redoing, oh, La Bamba. Great. Just a great bunch of musicians. And then, um, that leads me up to the fall of 1995, when I got a call from Brad Buxer, uh, who was in New York, and they were getting ready to work on uh, an MJ one-off show called One Night Only, which was going to be at the Beacon Theater. I think it was either November or December, I'm not sure. And um, he made, made me an offer I couldn't refuse. So, um, and it was right in my wheelhouse as far as, you know, technical stuff and sampling and engineering. So, Two days later, I was on a plane and in New York. Wow, what a story! That's incredible. Um, and that that does lead us on actually to our next question because um, you kind of covered a couple there in one. So thank you for that great answer. Uh, but we oh, did sure. we we we'd love to know a little bit of detail around that one night only show. Um, mm -hmm. Interestingly, today I think this very day, tenth of December marks the 21st anniversary of the uh, of the show um and i remember damien shields friend of the show damien shields who's who's somebody that mm. you know quite well has written a, oh, yeah. a fantastic 
article on that actually that goes into a lot of depth of what the show was going to become or on its way to become. Um, can you talk to us about how important that show would have been for Michael had he been well enough to perform it? Uh to a certain extent, I can. Remember, this was my first foray into working with uh, Michael. And in the beginning, much more working with you know Brad and the band and um, making sure all the sounds were right, um, all the drum sounds that we wanted uh, sampled for certain songs so that when the drummer hit a snare, you would hear the snare from Bad on the song Bad. If we were going to do uh, Jam, if he hit the snare, it was going to trigger the snare so- uh, the snare sound of jam. Same thing with the kicks and stuff, and sometimes on the toms. And so we were using like the best technology available at that time. Uh, Michael really wanted the live band to sound as much like the record as possible. You know, and most of that's really easy. You know, the guitar players dial in the same guitar tone. Background singers work on singing the exact same harmonies that Michael sang. And uh, um, so for the first several weeks, I was fairly insulated and isolated uh, in, uh, I think we were at SIR, I'm not sure. And we were uh, just, it was just the band in a room rehearsing, you know, uh, at first, no background singers, no nothing, just the band. And then they brought in the background singers and you'd go out in the hallway every once in a while on a break or something, and you'd run into people that I had never known before. That's when I first met uh, Lavelle and Travis, and I think Jamie was there. And, you know, to me, it was just like, I, I'm, I really didn't know that much about what they did, but I knew we were all there for the, for the same reason. And everybody was really looking forward to the show, because that's what you work for. I mean, you're programming 12, 14, 16-hour days, and uh, and you can't wait to really, you know get to the Beacon Theater, which is where that show was going to be, and get on the real stage and get out of the rehearsal room and have the dancers in the same room at the same time and start really running, you know, running the show down. And having Michael, you know, come in, because he would come into the rehearsals at some point and sing, but, you know, nobody was in costume. We weren't, there was no light. You know, if you've ever been to a rehearsal room, it's a fairly bland, you know, fairly bland thing you know everybody's just standing around no stages you know and stuff like that so how it would have helped michael's career that's a that's an interesting question because michael was already gigantic then you know um i think it would have helped the career of the producer of the show who was a wonderful man and uh i was really sad for him that the show uh, didn't happen because uh, I think his name is Jeff Margolis. Yeah, and um, and you guys probably know more about that than <laughs> I do. But he was he really had the whole show in his head. He'd gone over with Michael. Um, I was excited because one of my my mother and she was from from uh, Austria. One of her heroes, uh, Marcel Marceau, was going to be part of the show. I remember calling her and telling her that she thought that was unbelievable. And so, you know, for me, it was just going to be this amazing opportunity to actually be involved in a Michael Jackson show, you know, and, and that was the, the icing on the cake. And, you know, unfortunately, as everyone knows, Michael had, uh, um, I don't know if it was the flu or if he had, uh, you know, 
if he was just worn out. But I mean, I was right in the room when he just really literally passed out and fell forward. Uh, his hand stayed by his side. His face crashed right down onto the stage. It was a horrifying thing to see, you know, and, and you knew right then and there that was not a good fall. Mm. Um, and, and to add something that I learned in later years from Brad Buxer, uh, the MD, this was all related to, and the reason um, he thinks that this happened is this was all related to promotion for uh, history, which had just been finished. And he said, and I didn't know this till he told me, that this was actually either the third or fourth one-off that they had done in about a three-month period. And one-offs are actually harder than a tour. You know, when you do a tour, you've got much longer to rehearse. And once you learn it, you're just doing that same thing for the next six months or the next year. And a one-off, they all have to be a little bit different to make them unique. Uh, this was going to have all new dance routines and different versions of songs and edited differently. And that's what that's what Brad thinks is what really led to Michael's collapsing was that this wasn't the first one. And Michael hadn't been sitting at home at the ranch, you know, relaxing for two or three months. He had been doing other one offs, you know, and I forget what they are. I want to say one of them was for MTV. Yeah. The uh, 1995 uh, MTV Awards. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think they had just finished that fairly recently. And uh, and Michael never had enough downtime in between these. You know, it was just one to another to another. And then, you know, at that point, I'm sure he would have had some downtime over the holidays. And then uh, there was already rumors at that point about a, a tour for the History album. Uh, and, and actually, that your first tour with Michael, um, one night only was your first project, is that correct? And uh, your, your first... Next, your next project was the history tour. That's correct. That's correct. And um, and I say this with sadness that my career with Michael is bookended by two two tragedies. You know where you know he passed out in one, and the in the second one he passed away. And I wish. Neither of those things had happened. But I, I did notice from all the videos I'd seen of Michael Jackson over the years watching TV, and uh, I'd never been to a, his concerts, but I remember the first day he walked into the Beacon Theater, and I was just like on cloud nine going, wow, Michael's going like, to knock, knock us dead. And the very first song he sang, I forget what it was, he, had, he, had, he seemed like 50% of the Michael Jackson I expected in his energy, you know, and I went like, what's going on, you know, but I just figured, all right, well, I don't know. I've never seen him before. You know, maybe, you know, they just make him look better on the videos or something like that. But, it, you know, I had no idea he wasn't feeling well at all. So, so that was to refresh your memory on, on dates here. That was December of 95. Um, yes. when, uh, when that happens, the history tour began in September 96 is when it first uh, debuted, I believe, in Prague. Prague yeah, maybe that, that sounds right. Uh, any, that anyway, sounds so that, right. that was a, a nine that was a nine month period. When how how was that reengagement like? So, you know that what happened in those nine months as far as as far as your role goes. Well, um, you know, basically, 
when Michael first went to the hospital in, was it December of 95? Um, Jeff Margolis was very hopeful that after one day or two days of rest and fluids that, that MJ would come back. So he goes, okay, everybody, you know, business as usual, we'll keep running the show. And, and, um, you know, we, we ran it a few times with the dancers, you know, updated and edited the music. They were working on lighting and camera angles. And so the second day came and they were still hoping Michael would come. So he goes, okay, we'll see everybody tomorrow. And I don't remember if we rehearsed for two more days or for three more days, but at some point he came out on stage and made the announcement that, you know, they had just spoken to Michael. He still was feeling really terrible and uh, that, that they were going to have to postpone the show. At that point, they really didn't think or hope that it was going to be canceled, but obviously Michael needed more than a day or two or a week or two. So uh, probably the next day or the day after that, we all flew home. And, you know, I didn't know if I'd ever see anybody again, but the next spring, the drummer who was going to be on that special was Ricky Lawson. Uh, was a good friend of mine. And he started calling me and asking me if I would like to do the Steely Dan tour with him. And I'm going like, well, that sounds good. That Steely Dan's one of my favorite bands. I don't know if you guys know who they are. They're an yes. American act. But uh, some of the best and earliest, uh, you know, digital recordings that were just that stand stand up to this day as far as their their authenticity and just how beautiful they sound, you know, from a recording point of view. Um, Roger Nichols was the was the engineer. And uh, so Ricky called me, and I'm thinking, okay, that sounds pretty interesting. I love Steely Dan. I actually went down and ran monitors for Steely Dan for a couple days, and um, uh, Ricky got the gig as the drummer because they were looking for a, a, a drummer just for that tour. And I called up uh, a name you may not or you may know uh, uh Benny Collins and Benny was Michael's um, uh, tour manager and had been for, for, or is he production manager for, for several tours. And I called Benny and I go, Hey Benny, um, I have this opportunity to go um, out on a Steely Dan tour. I said, but I don't want to miss a Michael Jackson tour. And he goes, well, he goes, there's nothing official uh, that I can tell you right now but, you know, MJ has talked about touring this year. And so I basically had to make uh, a decision on my own with no information. I had a, a for sure gig with Steely Dan and I had, well, maybe in two or three or more weeks, we're going to know about Michael's touring situation. And I just called up Ricky and I said, I can't do Steely Dan. And he was mad at me ever <laughs> for the next 15 years. Why, and, if I may ask, why? Why'd you make that risky call? That's a good question. Um, that's a good question because, to be quite honest with you, the pay would have probably been the same. I can only think that I, I had started developing, other than a good relationship with Ricky Lawson, a good relationship with Brad Buxer, you know? And, uh, and Brad said, Michael, if, there, if there's a tour you know, we definitely want to use you. And I went, okay. And, and I, I think Michael just had a history of 
touring more often than Steely Dan. Steely Dan, I mean, they would go for 10 years without touring, mm. you know, and, and do several albums without touring. So when they toured, it was sort of a, a unique thing. And you, you didn't know if the tour was going to be two months or four, but you knew it wasn't going to be a year long or anything like that. So, you know, I, let's put it this way. I made the right call for once. And, uh, and about two weeks later, you know, Benny called me and Brad called me and said, yep, MJ just said he's going to tour. And, uh, uh, I have no doubt that your dates are correct as far as September, but pretty much we were rehearsing the entire summer because I remember how hot it was, mm. um, especially rehearsing for the history tour, the final production rehearsals before we went to Europe and did more production rehearsals were in a big, big airplane hangar at uh, San Bernardino Airport, and this place was not air-conditioned, and it was about 110 degrees. Oh, wow. And uh, I don't know what that is in centigrade, but it's hot. And I just remember I would just sit there, and I would count the, the drops of water falling off my face, uh, well, for fun, every once in a while. <laughs> and it was just ridiculously hot. You know, you could barely move, and uh, and... A little interesting story has nothing to do with, with, uh, with the music. But, you know, Brad is an airplane pilot, and he was working uh, on the pre-production of the music in the studio. And uh, here in, in L.A., he would drive his car to um, uh, the Van Nuys Airport, and he would fly a little single-engine plane uh, to the San Bernardino Airport. And so everybody else is driving there, right? And then... Right around, you know, rehearsal time, you see this plane pull up <laughs> right up to where the door is. And he'd turn the engine off and he would pop out of the plane and he flew home every night. You know, I thought that was really cool. Um, <laughs> how many people get to fly to a fly to a rehearsal and fly back? <laughs> that's incredible. What a story. He may, he may be the only one person in history that's ever done that <laughs> that I know of, you know. But um, and Brad anyway, was and Brad was the the. Um, like the, the, the musical director. director on the history tour, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. exactly. In fact, people that are in the business, you know, you just automatically go, "Yeah, Brad's the MD." And I've found so many people since then that I'll go, "Oh, yeah, Brad was Michael's MD," and they'll just go, "He was his doctor." Yeah, I'll go, "No, <laughs> no, no," but because you just expect anybody that's been around bands knows uh, knows, you know. But I just remember how hot that was and it's it was pretty good uh for all of us because if you could live through that you pretty much knew you were good for a really long arduous tour you know and uh and they finally brought an air conditioner in i remember watching them bring in this one of those big you know like auxiliary units and they're running these hoses and i'm just going wow this is amazing we're we're finally like the last week we're finally going to get air conditioning and guess what it was all pointing right where Michael stood. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> of course. so we're, we're still back there just like sweating and sweating and sweating, but at least where Michael was, there was some nice cold air. So whenever he wasn't there, we would just take turns running out and just standing there for about two minutes. <laughs> the only, the only good, bad thing about it is you felt awful as soon as you walked away again, you know? So you started to learn after one or two times, it's better just to stay in the heat. Yeah. What was the tour like? What's a, what's, what's a Michael Jackson tour like? Beyond anything I had ever imagined, uh, because, you know, 
we toured uh, in the 70s and 80s and 90s with some fairly big opening, I mean, uh, main acts, you know, like when we played with Kiss, there, there were 20 to 30,000 people there. But, I mean, still you're looking at, you know, four to six trucks and three or four buses. And we had one truck and one bus. And to my mind, there was no catering or anything like that. So, you know, you you start to find out more about the vastness of these tours um, as they begin to get assembled, because obviously you don't have catering when you're in rehearsal. Uh, somebody just brings food in every day. Uh, by the time you get to Europe, you realize you've got the band, the dancers, and MJ, and then you've got uh, a whole lighting crew. You've got a whole sound crew. You've got a whole bunch of backline uh, uh, and band crew uh, technicians, and um, and then you've got the whole video crew. We're, and there half of those guys are under the stage and they're running all the videos you see on the sidewalls and what came on the jumbotron up above the band. And, um, and then that you've got cameramen, you know, like there's like four or five people running cameras, one guy on stage and, uh, a, a boom camera and there's one out in front of house and there was another one. And, uh, you realize that all these things are happening at the same time. So it's almost like a TV production that's live. Of course, they taped it every night just so they would have, you know, like a record of it. But, you know, you've got a TV production going on. You've got back then lighting wasn't as evolved as it is. It is now we had to have two uh, lighting consoles and two guys running the lights. And then, you know, one of those two guys would be calling spots, which if you really think about it, imagine moving all these lights with your hands and at the same time talking to six spotlight operators and telling each one what color they need to be on and who they need to focus on. And, and you have to count them in just like, okay, in three, two, one, and they'd be like purple on the guitar player. I mean, that's a, I've never tried that, but when I, when I hear about it, I go like, that's impossible because that's multitasking at its, at its best, I think. And, uh, th and then you meet, the carpenters and you meet the seamstresses and you meet the wardrobe uh, crew uh, and you meet finally the people that are, uh, are doing all the cooking and they're the hardest working people on the tour because they have to get up at four, four thirty in the morning, find a local uh, translator, depending on what country you're in and rent a, a truck and go to all these uh, fresh food markets and buy, you know, Vegetables, meats, eggs, stuff to make bread with. Um, one lady was, her sole job was making pastries and desserts, you know. And uh, and I'm going like, wow, this is like a whole traveling city. And it was. I think we had at least 120 employees. And uh, we had three of those gigantic Soviet Antonov um, uh, cargo planes where the fronts open up. And we had, I want to say, Brad thinks we had three planes. Michael had a big plane, the band had a big plane, and the crew had a big plane. Like all, like a four-engine jet, kind of a big plane. And I think he's right. You know, I think he would remember that more than I do. And that was my introduction to touring. Once we got to Europe, I'm going like, holy cow, you know. And really, it's, 
a whole lot of individuals each doing their job to perfection every day or every show, and that's what makes it work. And, oh, I forgot, you have a steel crew, and there were two steel crews. It took me a few weeks to figure that out because I kept seeing different people. I'm going, like, who is that, you know? And uh, we had two stages, and it takes more than two days to build a stage, so they were leapfrogging. So if we played in Prague, that was, you know, the crew number one and, and stage number one, and they would build that. And then let's say the next place we we're playing was Stockholm. Well, the second stage was already on its way to Stockholm from the previous gig, and there was another set of steel workers that were putting that stage up. So though we would see the same group of steel workers every other day. Uh, and it was a two-day uh, load-in, and what that means is the first day – you bring in the PA, the jumbotron, all the lights, hang them up off the stage, and do all that stuff. And then the day of the show, we would come in with um, with all the band gear and uh, all the stuff we needed to actually make music. You know, um, uh, the good thing about that was it gave people like me extra days off, which were wonderful. I really got a chance to do some sightseeing. So, Michael Prince, how would you uh, describe, in layman's terms, what your job on the tour was? In the very beginning, I started out as the drum technician, mainly because I knew how to do all the sampling and convert a drum trigger to a MIDI note, which then went to a sampler, which told the sampler, you know, what sound to play and that was mixed in with like a real snare sound and the funny thing is before i did that i had never changed a drum head in my life you know which told me and i knew this going in that the job was more of an engineering slash electronic gig than it was like a drum tech gig because what i later found out is it's not that hard to change a drum head and in fact the first two drummers I worked with were uh, Ricky Lawson and John Moffat, and and it kind of shocked me when they both told me I was the best drum technician they ever had. And I'm going like, how is that possible? You know. Um, but I think if you really, really care about what you're doing and do it to the best of your ability, maybe you can rise to the top. One thing that sticks out a lot for fans from the History Tour, uh, kind of a controversial topic. Uh, especially considering we have uh, his uh, musical engineer, sound engineer, on the call. Um, lip syncing on the history tour, sort of the most uh, discussed uh, element, among others, on, on the show. I, I, you mentioned earlier that Michael loves, um, wants the music to sound just like the albums. And uh, is that perhaps the reason why... Uh, some of the songs sound like they, they aren't using live vocals on that tour? Absolutely. Two, two things that I, I and, and it's not a secret, you know, um, uh, that I, I would mention. One, um, and it's, you know, goes way beyond Michael. It goes to almost anybody that is dancing a highly choreographed, up-tempo song. You can't do that without, and sing live without getting completely out of breath, you know? And once you get out of breath, you can't suck in enough air to sing a whole vocal line. Um, so, you know, Michael, 
I think, learn that from other artists. Um, and I won't mention any names at all, but there are definitely some other huge, huge artists that sang even less of their show uh, than Michael did, you know. Um, and and history was not, it was the first tour I was involved uh, in, as far as Michael goes. But uh, they there was lip syncing on previous tours as well. And I think it started with the big production numbers where you had to do a lot of dancing and really focus on, on the dancing. Um, although I, I never really, you know, talked to him about it. Like Michael, you know, why do you do this? But we did have a lot of discussion before this is it about, um, and in his, in his, you know, words to me that he wanted to sing much more than on the previous tours. I went, okay, great. And, um, in fact, we were going to have, uh, a meeting he and I uh, about exactly what parts of what songs he thought he might need some help on vocally on the day he passed away, you know, and so we never had that final, you know, meeting and he never told me what songs, you know, but, you know, you can probably guess, you know, some of the, you know, maybe the chorus of a certain song, um, we might use a pre-recorded vocal and then he would sing the verse. But and, I'll tell you something that he said to me, and it's it's something that I, I, I fundamentally disagree with, but I would never disagree with Michael Jackson, is he, he said to me, he goes, if the audience isn't hearing the song exactly the way it sounds on the record, I feel they are being sonically cheated. And... I remember almost feeling surprised when he said that because the reason I like going to a concert is I'm expecting it to sound different, you know? I'm expecting solos to be longer. I'm expecting, you know, dance breaks to be longer. I'm expecting different intros and different endings and things like that. So I don't, and, but I didn't say that to him. I mean, part of me wishes I would have, but I didn't want to disagree with him you know i mean it's his show he's been touring since he was what five or six you guys probably know more than i do about that but since he was a kid and i'm sure for many 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 years sang everything live you know and then at some point um maybe they had it as a safety valve for a night if he had a sore throat and he went wow that went really well and then it sticks in his head and uh I just think by the time we got to the history tour and, and, you know, you have to pardon me for not being on the, you know, the dangerous or the bad tour. Cause I don't really know, you know, what, if anything was lip sync, but I don't think that the history tour was his first foray in, into, no, into lip syncing. It definitely wasn't. And even if you go way back to the Jackson five, like many, many TV appearances were lip synced. Um, oh, absolutely. And it's not something – what you see, though, is just a very, very slow, steady progression from shows being 100% live um, to almost being um, 100% lip-synced. And, um, you know, there could be a, a number of reasons for that, but I am so, so glad to hear that Michael, by the end, was really excited to start singing a lot more live again because, boy, was he a great live singer. He really was. And, um, and I know that was his plan. Uh, and like I said, you know, that night 
uh, our last night together, you know, I went to his dressing room. It was just he and I. And and one of the things he said is, he goes, tomorrow we're going to discuss my vocals for the tour. You know, and he says, uh, he says, I, he already had it planned. Believe me, when Michael had something in his head, he could think it all the way through, didn't have to take notes. And, uh, and, but he definitely was planning mm. on a lot more live singing. I mean, this is something we'll get to a little later when we're talking about This Is It, but there's a moment sure. on the DVD or the Blu-ray, it's like a special feature where Michael's singing, he's like singing Don't Stop Till You Get Enough live. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh my God, that is just, that to me, that's, I, I find that to be the ultimate moment really on the Blu-ray because it's just so natural and it's so, oh, it's beautiful to watch. I don't know if I've I don't know if I've seen that. Is I'll, it in the spe- bonus material? It's it's in the bonus material. He's on stage, oh. and um, I think he's surrounded by Dorian. Um, uh, who else? It might have been Michael Bush. I'll send you I'll send you the clip of it later in our Facebook chat, and it's it's stunning oh, cool. to really listen to. And is it a cappella or is it with the band? Uh, it's a cappella. Oh wow! Yeah, very cool. Michael Prince, why do you think? Um, he had that change of heart, given that he had that ethos about the audience needing to hear the song the way it sounds on the record. Why do you think he revised that for the This Is It shows? Well, I think he was aware um, that many of his fans and most of the critics, I mean, when I say critics, I mean people that write articles about the shows, uh, were aware that there was quite a bit of lip syncing going on and and that he really wasn't not that he was trying to fool anybody but i think for a while he felt comfortable in it you know what i mean and he just thought well i know the vocals are going to be great tonight i have to dance my ass off and just so you know uh, you know we have some recordings that we made um uh multi-track recordings and he actually does sing the entire show um we just don't use that vocal you know you know, it it has to be said, you know, and I've listened to them both that, hey, the one on the album is perfect. You know, I mean, I mean, how much better can you get than perfect? You know, and 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 I think it probably shortened up his his warm up times and things like that. But but I think I think the thing is, is over the years, uh, Michael just got more and more comfortable with um, with using um, a pre-recorded vocal uh, because it, it, you know, I think the other thing he would worry about, and, and you can say, you know, the old adage, you're only as good as your last show, you're only as good as your last album, and then you can take that one step further and you can go, you're only as good singing-wise as the worst note you hit that night. So he may sing 15 songs perfectly and have a bad note, and that's what somebody's going to write about the next day in the paper, you know? And I really think... He thought all that stuff through. So partway through the history tour happening, one of Michael's most uh, celebrated records came out, especially critically celebrated, and that's Blood on the Dance Floor. Uh, it's, a record, yeah. it's a record that's gone on to be dissected every which way, um, right down to all the lyrics. I mean, it's got some of the most incredibly cryptic, amazing lyrics on it. It's uh, a brilliant, brilliant piece. Uh, what was it like to work on that project? I did not work on that project. Oh, <laughs> I thought you did. <laughs> okay. No, I was, I was actually in L.A. 
Um, I had some work I had to do for them, but it was not album related. They did that while we were on a, a break between the first leg of the history tour and the second leg, which was basically almost all in Europe uh, uh, of the history tour. That's when we ditched all the planes and we just got buses and trucks and uh, and toured the old fashioned way, you know, um, and it was much easier to tour that way. And that was mostly recorded, according to my conversations with Brad Buxer, in um, in Europe, and I think they were. I want to say they were in Montreux for a while, and also I believe they recorded some of it. Um, and uh, and Charles may remember us mentioning this. Uh, uh, some of the vocals were done at uh, Dieter's studio in Germany. So, so what was your uh, your first in studio experience with Michael Jackson for for an album project? It, it was the um, the Invisible album. Um, Basically, uh, as soon as the tour ended, um, which if I had to guess, I'd say it was like October of 97 or something like that. I'm not really sure. You know, Brad took me aside and said, look, you know, Michael wants us to start working on new material. When he said us, he didn't really mean me, but he meant Brad and other writers on new material right away. And he goes, um, would you be interested in that? And of course I was, you know? And so basically uh, we set up, well, Brad already had a recording, a nice recording studio at his house. We set up a second one up in the living room, uh, much like we would set up at Michael's ranch, you know, where you have a bunch of keyboards and samplers and drum machines and sequencers and pro tools and things like that. And so uh, Michael could, get an idea or Brad could go to the ranch and, and take some notes and come back. And then we'd start working on music and we were working on stuff that actually has never come out. Like, and we, we still laugh about these titles. They're all working titles, but one was called bio and one was called uh, monster. And, Oh gosh, there were a couple others that I can't remember off the top of my head because I haven't thought of them in years, but, uh, we literally within a week we were set up at Brad's house working on uh, new songs already. Wow! We actually just on on that note we just um, recorded an interview with C.J. Devilla, who um, mm-hmm. was talking about he he spoke at length about the track Monster and how much uh, how complex it is in terms of the layers of different instrumentation. Uh, it was great, great being able to speak with him. Sounds like you guys were working on some pretty phenomenal stuff. Yeah, I mean. I mean, we started on a lot of those songs, like I said, at Brad's house, and it was at least six months or eight months before we went to our first official recording studio, which was, um, I want to say we, we went to record one first, but we might have gone to the record plant first. I'm not really sure which place we went to first because we bumped around. You know, we'd go to a studio for a while. And then we go back to either the ranch or Brad's house. And then we go to a studio for a little while. And, and then and then once it hit like second or third gear, then we were pretty much in the studio for the whole rest of the project. But we, we worked on that for the better part of four years. So in terms of the Invincible album, which has a very, very special place in my heart because it's the, the first Michael Jackson album that came out um, while I was a fan. Um, I became a fan in 2001 from the 30th anniversary shows, actually. Mm. 
And the songs on that album, so like the groupings, I know like Rodney Jerkins worked on a lot of those songs, Teddy Riley worked on a lot of them. So the group of songs that you worked on, were they, were they sort of the ones that were Michael's own, uh, the songs he wrote like Speechless and The Lost Children? Yeah, I worked primarily on those songs and uh, um, also on the songs with uh, uh, Dr. Freeze, Okay. Straight. Yeah. And um, So Break of Dawn and then... What eventually mm-hmm. came out as Blue Gangster and A Place With No Name. Yeah, I worked on that and Place With No Name, even though somebody or in the estate or Sony forgot to put my name on there. That's okay. Um, actually, Freeze had quite a few songs that I think were probably destined to be on the album. And then Rodney came in with with a whole team. It's not just Rodney. It's like four other guys, five other people. And they went nonstop. I think Rodney realized what a huge opportunity that would be and so they basically worked 24 hours a day they they had cots set up in the studio and they would take turns sleeping (laughs) yeah i've heard that yeah yeah it it was it was (laughs) amazing and the the funny thing was they had these two engineers working with them and they were twin brothers you know so one would work 12 hours and go home the other one would show up work 12 hours (laughs) finally I think they pulled Brad aside or they pulled somebody aside and they go, look, we, we need a break. And they go, what do you mean? Well, we've been doing this for like three weeks now, you know, and like literally seven days a week, 12 hours a day. So I don't know if they, I think they, at that, at some point they brought in a third engineer so they could all get a little bit more, a little bit more downtime, you know, but that was a really crazy time we had, that was at record one. We had you know, the entire place. There's two beautiful rooms there. And um, we are in one room with basically uh, Michael's songs, Freeze's songs uh, with uh, uh, Bruce Wadeen and, and Mike Ging. And then the other room had, uh, and I went back and forth between both rooms, but but uh, the other room was primarily those those two twin brothers and for God, God knows why I can't remember their names. But then again, I haven't seen them since the 98 and then the project, one day, you know, they make a little announcement. Hey, we're going to the Hit Factory in New York. Oh, great. When? Tomorrow. You know, so it's like, you know, <laughs> you had to, like, get all the tapes and label them so that, you know, when they got shipped, we well, had to copy them first so there would be backups. But all the tapes, and I'm talking hundreds of tapes by then, like the big two-inch tapes and the Sony, the Sony, uh, I think there were one-inch tapes or half-inch tapes that went on the the new Sony digital machine, that was an amazing machine, uh, had 48 tracks on it. And we were still using Pro Tools as well. Uh, and, and once we were happy with stuff in Pro Tools, it would usually get transferred to a tape machine because Bruce Wadeen still felt more comfortable, you know, dealing with tape and knowing there's a, you know, there's a rewind button and a play button and a fast forward button and a locate and all that kind of stuff. Makes sense. I mean, and some songs had so many tracks, we'd have, Two forty-eight tracks hooked up to each other, which gives you, was that ninety-six tracks and a Pro Tool system, all slaved to, to timecode. Um, but that was, and that again was a big uh, experience for me, just going from uh, a my studio, b all the rock projects I'd done up to then, which were pretty much either twenty-four track or sometimes they'd be thirty-two track or something. But never had I seen two forty-eight track machines hooked up to each other, you know, going like, how could you possibly fill up that many tracks? Well, you can, 
you know, because Michael loved nice big intros, you know, and some of them were orchestral. Well, you needed a whole bunch of tracks for that. And that may only be the first 45 seconds of the song, you know, but you still had to have the tracks available for that. And sometimes there were so many tracks like that you would take the intro and make a stereo mix of that, uh, which is called a comp. And then it would, you'd always save, you know, the, the master tape of that. But from then on, now that Michael was happy with the mix and, and Bruce was happy with the mix, now you just had to deal with that as just a stereo part, which would happen a lot with other things like background vocals, because, you know, Michael would do, you know, like 30 tracks of background vocals, you know, and, uh, and same thing with the choir. You'd have, you know, on certain songs like Andre Crouch's choir and you'd have mics all over the room. But at some point you would make a stereo comp of of uh, of the choir, you know. So, you you know, once everybody's happy with it, why not leave it leave it as a stereo track and free up more tracks to do even more things on, you know. So it was a it was amazing. In terms of the teams working on that project, because there was, it sounds like there was a lot. There was like your team, there was Rodney Jerkins, there was even songs being done by, um, you know, Corey Rooney and Teddy Riley. Right. It seems to me like with this project, there were a lot of different sort of players involved in a lot of teams. Was the final track list decided by Michael? Like what were the politics around getting that final track list together? I can tell you with 99.99% of surety, Michael picked all the songs. He was he was the boss, and it was the songs that he wanted on that album. And I, I'm sure he took input, like, you know, if Bruce said, oh, Michael, this song's amazing, or if Rodney said, Mike, I think this is one of the best ones we've done, I'm sure Michael took that to heart. But in the end, Michael was the one who would go home with, uh, uh, with CDs of all the songs and listen to them and want changes on them and then come back and have the changes made, and, and may, I'm sure he made the final song selection. Because there, there's some there's some beautiful songs that, that didn't make it, like Escape and We've Had Enough, which is like, We've Had Enough is in, in my, like, top 10 MJ songs. We've Had Enough is amazing, is amazing. I remember listening to that about a year after the album um, come, came out and going like, I said, well, and I also felt Escape should have been on an album yeah. personally, you know? yeah. I remember talking to one of the guys who was, you know, much deeper in Rodney's camp than I. And one of the first things he said is, is he goes, I can't believe they put, didn't put Escape on there. I go, and I hadn't even heard it. I go, can, you, can I hear it? And he played it. And I go, because I was a big fan of a band from the UK uh, in the 80s called uh, Screedy Politi or Screedy Politi. I don't know how you say it. But that song reminded me, you know, of that kind of really great you know, percussion and, and the kind of vocals. And the interesting thing was, well, I guess Michael didn't think it was, you know, the top, you know, the top 15, but years later when I was working with Michael, just he and I in 2008, uh, and it was because of the song escape. I always wanted to ask him if he was a fan of Scritti Politi. And he, he, lit up when I said that he said he loved them, you know, and he was a huge fan of Scrooge Twitty. Um, then I was thinking, I didn't say this to him. I'm going, well, then why didn't he put escape on that? <laughs> you know, because, because it just had that kind of great vibe. Yeah. And the, the music on the album, unfortunately became overshadowed by the, the fallout with Sony, which happened just a few months after its release. Did that seem to be, um, 
bubbling up during the recording process or did it come as a surprise to the people that were involved in the recording? Well, there's two separate tiers or plateaus as far as your question goes. The first one was slowly bubbling to the surface uh, during the making of the album because it was so over budget. Sony wasn't very happy with the budget. And believe me, I won't mention any numbers. It was me coming from doing rock records for like $100,000. You could have done about 20 or 30 of them, you know. But you have to remember, if Michael wants to go to the hit factory and rent out three rooms and have all of us stay at the Four Seasons for six months, that costs a lot of money, you know, a lot of money. I can only imagine, you know. Um, so there was initially a, a little, when is this going to be done? When is this going to be done? It should have been done by now. And I think Michael felt a little pressure at the end. But honestly, I think they got all that stuff sorted out in early 2001. And we went down to Criterion in Florida and sort of finished the album down there, sort of got a new, uh, a nice new Florida vibe. And, uh, you know, that's when Teddy came down there with his bus. He has a recording studio in his bus. And um, Bruce was in a room and Rodney was in another room. And everything kind of finally felt like, okay, this is going to be done in a couple months. And, and it was. And so, obviously, you know, no company, record company or other company, wants to spend too much money on something but long story short it finally got done everybody was happy with the record and then comes the second thing which was the 30th anniversary show that you referenced you know uh, in 2001 that show and i was there i working on that show that show was a great show and i i got to mix it along with uh, my friend keith uh, keith cohen that show was on CBS. CBS is owned or is part of Sony. And I was really shocked when that show came on two or three weeks after we actually recorded. I forget when it actually happened. That Sony didn't take out one single ad for Michael's new album. You know, that just seemed like wrong to me, you know. So I, you know... I figured something's going on. Uh, and then another thing that a lot of people don't realize is that Michael told us after the second show um, on 9-10, he said to expect a phone call in two to three weeks because we were going to tour. So everybody's in great spirits. And so that means in the year 2002, there's going to be another Michael Jackson world tour. And, and then we all know what happened the next morning on 9-11. And I think Sony, and Sony may have known, now that I think about it, by the time we mixed the show and edited it and delivered it to CBS, that all major artists, minor artists, had canceled all, all any and all tours that took place outside of the United States. We just felt the whole world was unsafe and Michael was one of those people. So now Sony has an artist that they thought was going to tour, and he's not going to tour. 
And for good reasons, he's not touring. I mean, a lot of the countries we went to, other than the ones in you know the main part of Europe, were probably not safe to go to anymore, at least for a while until things settled down or we knew what the heck was going on. So I think once Sony found out, and probably they knew this now that I think about it before the show actually came on CBS, they probably knew there wasn't going to be a tour. And I think that's when the, the stuff with Time Matola really hit the fan. But that's only my opinion. I don't really know. So how, how, like, how engaged would you say Michael was with the um, 30th anniversary shows in terms of the rehearsal process? Um, he was much more like the Michael Jackson from, from the history tour, you know, um, uh, once again, I think you have choreographers always trying to re-choreograph things. And in the beginning, Michael always wants to give them, you know, poetic license and say, sure, you know, do your thing. Let's, let's check it out. And so, you know, you have like, you know, dangerous getting re-choreographed for the third time and, and, you know, in the end, I don't really know what was changed. I'd have to watch the show again. And I'm not a choreographer, so I probably would notice it anyway. But, you know, in the end, we ended up doing those songs much the same way we did on the history tour. Some of them were shorter, you know, and we did fewer songs. Um, but, uh, but it wasn't all that different. I think what made the show really different is, you know, Michael performing with his brothers, you know, one last time. That was yeah, amazing. I think um, I think uh, you were actually uh, uh, lucky enough to to be working with Michael through one of sort of the biggest moments I would say in his in his life, and it is uh, uh, him becoming a father. And uh, we like to stay away from talking too much about Michael's personal affairs, but uh, certainly it, it has a, a tremendous influence on his art. Uh, on the Invincible album, uh, what what kind of what what changes did you notice in in Michael? Just Michael the father. Mm, well, I mean, he was always a very very kind and loving uh, human being. You know, one of the most incredible people you could ever meet. And uh, the the most wonderful thing that happened, uh, I think, uh, and, and it's trivial in a, in a lot of ways, and it's almost meant to be funny, is that uh, the the hours that he would work became much more predictable, you know, which were wonderful. Like, uh, uh, I didn't have to sleep with a cell phone on my chest every night, you know, and <laughs> wait for a phone call at four o'clock in the morning because Michael, once he had the kids, you know, he went to bed earlier. He got a good night's sleep. He got up early and there was a lot more schedule and routine in his life. Um, than when there weren't kids. I mean, you could, you could think you were going to have this wonderful three-day holiday weekend off, and you'd get a call from, from Michael on Friday morning going, okay, let's work this weekend. And you, you'd go, what? Uh, you wouldn't go, what? You'd go, yes, of course. You know, and you'd go up to the ranch and, uh, and tell your family, well, cancel the plans that we had because I'm going to be gone for three or four days. And, you know, Brad, had, Brad would have to do the same thing. But... Um, yeah, there was a lot more um, rhythm rhythm in his life, you know, and structure as far as you know, you know, bedtime and and he was a he was a great doting dad. I mean, he put those kids to bed most of the time, you know, and uh, spent a lot more time, if I'm not mistaken, at the ranch. And we were set up at the ranch for for quite a long while, you know. We were still working on um, 
uh, new songs all the time. I mean, Michael, that was one thing. He had this artistic uh, streak in him that didn't stop, you know. So just because an album was done, he still had ideas, you know, coming into his head mm. all the time, you know. And, and he needed to get those recorded somehow, you know, um, even if they were just going to be bookmarked and saved for later. Oh, I, we used to, I used to call those songs whips, works in progress, you know? And so sometimes you would get something up to a certain level and we just move on to another song, you know, but you know, that's why, you know, at Brad's place, we have this giant case full of things we call song packets. So every song we've ever started has a song packet, you know, and has usually like a lyric sheet and early, cassettes or dats or going even further back uh well not not further back than cassettes uh cds you know of rough mixes and very very early versions of songs and titles that were just working titles that were not the final titles and things like that um like he had a song called hansen you know and i really think he was writing it for hansen because he was friends with them and it he ended up using it uh, well i don't know if it's been used yet uh was it called the the way the way you love the me the way you love me the yeah. way you love me that's come out hasn't it that's come out in two oh, no. different form yeah forms it was on the ultimate collection album that came out during ah. the trial era and it also came out later on the michael album in 2010 yeah i mean that was that was a song that uh, you know and of course brad never gets the credit he's due but you know you know he wrote that with brad and a lot of other songs and um uh, but that was originally called Hanson. <laughs> wow. I never knew that. to me. 
Hey, this is really, really Brad Sundberg, studio engineer and technical director for Michael Jackson and host of In the Studio with MJ. You're listening to the MJ cast. So, I mean, during this time, obviously, we talked about 9-11 happening and how big an impact that made on the music industry and also Michael's career in general. Something that happened soon after that was uh, Michael uh, released a, a song, one of my favorites, certainly, uh, called What More Can I Give? Uh, talk to oh, us yeah. about the history of, of that particular track. Well, there's, <laughs> there is another song. Well, of course, it always brings a smile to my face because I agree with you. That song, to me, is an amazing song. And you take an amazing song and you look at all the amazing singers that are on there. You know, it's like Luther Vandross's final performance on anything mm-hmm. and Beyonce. And you've got uh, Beyonce. I mean, I actually have a version with Beyonce singing the entire song. Oh, and she kills God. it. <laughs> oh, wow. You know? um, and, and, and it wasn't meant to happen that way. It, and it's funny because Beyonce was, and then remind me to go back to 1996, but um, Beyonce was the first vocalist to come in because Michael had a scratch vocal on there and then we had a lyric sheet. And so now the idea was we're going to get all these people to sing on it. Not we, they are. I'm just the engineer. But um, so the first person that comes to the studio we're going to work at is Beyonce. And I think she was either still in Destiny's Child or had just broken away from Destiny's Child. I'm not really sure. But here's this incredibly gorgeous woman who can sing like an angel. And at the same time, I'm so used to Michael's singing, and his singing is perfect. I mean, we didn't use auto-tune. We didn't have to move things around rhythmically. Everything was perfect that came out of his mouth. So I just remember with dread the first day, like, Michael's there, and then Brad Buxer and I are there, and we're going to record Beyonce. And I'm kind of like going, oh, boy, here we go. You know, like Because I'm, I'm just not expecting it to be anywhere near an MJ caliber vocal. And so she listened to the song a few times. And basically, you know, if you've heard the song, the idea is everybody's supposed to do one or two lines, you know? So Mm -hmm. we weren't really sure yet because she was the first person. So we go, well, if you want to like, you know, maybe do the most of the first verse and and let's get you singing on on one of the courses and, and maybe some overdubs when you're ready. And she went out there literally and did the whole song top to bottom. And my jaw is just dropping, you know, like going like, this sounds amazing. You know what I mean? And, and all the ad libs she did at the end are all like keepers, you know, like ad libs are hard to do. Some people can't do them at all. And, um, and she just did ad lib after ad lib. I'm going like, well, that was better than that one. And so, I mean, that's when I realized how amazingly talented 
and gifted that woman is. You know, I want to say girl, but you know, she's grown up now. She has some kids, so I'll say woman. But she, what a wonderful experience that was. You know, and and it really opened up my eyes to how many other amazing vocalists there are. You know, in this in this wonderful world. And um, but let me drop back to 1996 real quick. When I first started working on the tour, I had two jobs. One was working on the tour, and the second one was working as Brad Buxer's assistant. In his hotel room, we had a, a studio set up. It was called an HRS, which stands for Hotel Room System. And he had the biggest one. You know, he had we had nice big tannoy speakers and amplifiers and, you know, samplers, drum machines, Pro Tools, keyboards, everything you would need to literally do an album if you needed to do an album. And so one of the first things I hear is this song. It's called Heal L.A. And I never asked, you know, why it was called Heal L.A., at least for a year or so. But that was something that Brad was always adding a new string part to it, or and Michael wanted a more complex intro and pretty much is the intro that you hear, you know, it's like that orchestral thing with the horns. And, um, and, uh, and so I, I found out later, the reason it was called Heal LA, it was done after the LA riots, after the, the Rodney King trial, uh, it wasn't his trial. It was the police officers that beat him up when they all got off scot-free, which they shouldn't have. Michael wrote a song because he wanted everybody to listen to it and it was all going to be about LA needs to come together and so Heal LA was this perfect title well by the so time the song came out what five years later we couldn't call it Heal LA anymore Michael had to sort of come up with a new a new lyric and a new name for it and that's where um that that's when it changed I think it was either 2000 probably 2000 or 2001 uh, it became What More Can I Give? And I can't remember if we had vocals, if, if Michael actually sang like a chorus that said Heal LA, or maybe it was just called Heal LA and Michael always had the melody in his head. I'd have to go back to some of my old, old, old hard drives and, and listen to it. Do you recall or remember any of the um, sort of conversations Michael had with you around the song and his vision for the song? I mean, clearly he was so passionate about it. Um, Michael... Uh, really felt that this was going to be bigger than um, We Are the World. And I thought it was going to be too. And I think Brad did too. And I think Bruce Wedeen, who mixed it masterfully, did too. And um, by then, this whole thing with Tommy Mottola um, and Sony was sort of in full swing. Um, they gave the song their blessing. They said, yep, if you can get, because they got a list of all the artists that Michael wanted to put on there, and I think they thought it couldn't be done. And they said, if you can get all these artists on here, we'll absolutely get behind this and put it out. Well, they did get all those artists on there, you know? And then Michael even did uh, Tommy Mottola a favor and put his new wife, Thalia, on, um, on the Spanish version called Total Power T. We did a version in Spanish that was uh, that we worked on with um, a guy named Casey Porter who rewrote the lyrics in Spanish. It's beautiful. That one has like, you know, Shakira and a whole bunch of other people that I don't, I don't really know. I recorded them all, but I don't speak Spanish um, very well. 
And uh, so we had an English version and a Spanish version. You know, the, the Spanish-speaking market is huge, all of Central and South America. That song should have gone through the roof. But in the very last minute, I remember being at the studio, um, and it was actually Tanya Matola came down there and co-produced Thalia when I was recording her, you know, or Thalia, I'm not really sure what her name is, but very nice lady, good voice. And at some point in time, I guess Tanya Matola deci decided Sony was not going to release that song. Yeah. And the only thing that they could think of with very little time and wanting to get this thing out is some sort of an internet release. And I've since talked to the guy that bankrolled most of that song, um, Mark Schaffel, and he goes, well, Michael, you probably don't remember this, but he goes, we put it online for sale, and it was like a dollar or something like that. Yeah. And uh, he said, the next morning was when they raided the ranch. And I went, what? And I didn't realize, you know, you know, all these things, how they were mapped out on a, on a calendar. But he says, so what they ended up doing was after less than 24 hours, the song was pulled down and it never went back up for sale. I remember it was announced I, at the Radio Music Awards. Beyonce was on stage with MJ and they showed like a music video of it. Mm -hmm. And then you could buy it. You could buy it online, exactly like you said. We'll we'll get to the okay to that that whole thing in a minute, but but back to sure. just that 2001 era. So yeah. I mean, there's there the 2001, the 30th anniversary show um, went off with a bang. It, it became clear pretty early on that the whole whole there might be some sort of issue with Sony. What more can I give Fizzles? By 2002, Michael is on a double decker bus uh, in London, and to a lesser extent, New York. A little bit later protesting his label, being on Team Michael, Team MJ, what's 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 going through your minds? What's talk about that a little bit. Well, we were always working on something, you know. So when Michael would like we might go to the ranch and work on stuff for two when I say we, it's always Brad Buxer and myself, you know. It was only me without Brad Buxer starting in two thousand eight. And uh Brad Brad was as integral as I may have been. Multiply that times about I I think ten is reasonable, and that's how integral Brad was in in Michael Sounds and getting getting his ideas uh, onto um, a recorded media so that we could we could listen. I want to say onto tape, but we didn't use tape anymore. So in the old days, you'd go onto tape. It was onto a hard drive. Uh, and then on to a CD. But, um, you know, Brad was really Michael's collaborator um, from the probably mid-90s on, you know, and uh, uh, and very happy to be. And uh, so normally what would happen is we didn't hear about most of these things until you did, and we saw them on the news. So, you know, Michael would start maybe on two or three new songs and we'd be up at the ranch and he'd go, all right, I'll see you guys in a couple of weeks. We wouldn't know where he was going. It wasn't any of our business. And we would go back to Brad's house and I had a studio at my house and we would work on things like different drum sounds, three different types of string arrangements for a certain part of a song, those kind of things that, you know, Michael would just say, this is what I want on these songs. You know, 
I want to hear some different ideas, some different percussion ideas. And so we would go back and keep working on these tracks that Michael had started. And, uh, and then you'd see on the news, you know, Michael's with Al Sharpton in New York and saying, what, Tommy Mottola is devilish or something like that. Um, and I didn't really ever, you know, and it's probably my own fault, but, you know, I also had a wife and was raising two kids and, and, um, and was working almost every day. So, you know, I, I wouldn't like, you know, try to reach out to Michael and go, what are you doing? Or, and Brad and I wouldn't really even talk about it. I mean, we had, we had work to do and we knew in a week or two or a month or so, Michael was going to be back or call on the phone and go, let me hear what you got, you know? And, um, sometimes we were actually up at the ranch for a week or a month while Michael was out of town. And we wouldn't know where he was, but he would call like every day and we'd play him like the things that got changed from the night before. And he'd say either yay or nay and, and give you some more changes and you just keep working. So I never really looked at the big picture, nor did I really formulate any sort of personal opinion on what was going on. I was very aware of why we were not touring in 2002, you know, which was 9-11. Yeah. Just just quickly before we move on, I just had one uh, last question about what more can I give. I'm curious as to know whether a solo uh, version of that exists. Did Michael record the vocals top to bottom of that song himself? Yeah, um, except they were done up at the ranch and and not Michael in full bloom. He knew that was going to be a scratch vocal track, right? So Okay it was never his intention for that to be heard. In fact, once Beyonce sang the entire track, Michael pulled Brad and I aside and he said, from now on, when you fly around and record, or depending on how you're recording these other vocalists, um, play them Beyonce's version. <laughs> and we went, okay. Wow. Because she nailed it, you know? And her her vocal performance was a lot more robust than Michael's because Michael never intended for that to be the final vocal. Yeah. So the next thing we wanted to ask you, Michael, was um, about uh, what went on to become Michael's last uh, proper single release, which came out in late 2003, which was One More Chance. Uh, were you involved in the recording of One More Chance? Most of the time, R. Kelly would send the raw tracks to Brad and then Brad and I would get them ready for MJ and add stuff that MJ may have wanted. Now I could be wrong. I, I mean, I, I know that song so well that I'm just thinking, um, I don't want to not tell you the truth. Uh, so I'm trying to think I have, I have all my notes right here now. Um, because this main Pro Tools computer I have in my office has almost copies of most of the stuff they worked on. Yeah, and I've got, oh yeah, I, I worked on this song for a long time. Um, I can see um, going to the earliest version was June 27th, 2003. Oh, it's my birthday. Uh, is it really? Yeah. <laughs> oh. Wow, that's kind of an a remarkable thing. Not the year, um, but the, uh, the, the date. <laughs> well, I know. Yeah. I, I know. That's my birthday. Uh, let's see. Uh, 
So, yeah, it says one more chance at Marvin's. That's Marvin's place. That's the place that um, we did a little bit of work uh, on the uh, Invincible album as well. That's owned by John McLean, who is now um, one of the main guys at the estate. And then we go into uh, our numbering system, which starts with 1.1, and it goes incrementally up. So we could always go back to an older version. And we were using Pro Tools 5.1, which is a pretty old version of Pro Tools by today's standards. We're up to 12. And we looked, looks like we actually started working on the song in earnest. Um, uh, by July 9th, we had version 1.1. And then it goes up to, let's see, here's uh, version 13.6 MJA, which stands for Michael Jackson Approved. And um, I think it goes up further than that, too. So MJA. Now we're up to July 13th of 2003. So that's actually pretty quick. And then um, one more chance. So here's 14.4 MJA. Now we're up to July 15th. That's only a couple more days. So we were going pretty fast. Let's see. Let me scroll way down. Now we're on, oh, one more chance vocals two. So now we've kind of finished the music. Michael's happy with the music. We're working on vocals. And now we're going up to, well, we're still on July 23rd. When you see this many things, you know we were working on this thing like 20 hours a day. Um, July 25th, 27th. I'm trying to see if there's a last one. One more chance. Vocal. July 30th of 2003 and then let's see i'll go scroll to the bottom real quick and just see one more chance vocal 33.5 july 30th looks like we finished uh end of july early early uh well th here's a one more chance 1.5 that says november 17 2003 so when did the when did the song come out uh, and yes, I worked on it. November 20th. Okay. Out. Okay, because the, the latest date I, I have here is, um, actually, it's Thursday, November 20th, 2003. But it's just, it, that's a copy. Yeah. Okay, cool. So that era, 2003, uh, there's, there was a lot of speculation at the time. You know, Michael was sort of... Um, in a very public dispute with his record label, he was leaving Sony. Uh, obviously, the era had was sort of dramatically sidetracked by uh, the uh, what ultimately became the trial. But what were Michael's plans post post Sony dispute? Was he working on more material? Did, was there any discussion about what he was going to be doing if it, if it weren't for the trial? Yes, and yes, we were always working. We never stopped working on songs. Uh, I mean, jumping ahead a little bit, even when Michael was in Bahrain, he was working on songs over there with, um, oh gosh, I'm embarrassing myself. Oh, I can't think of his name. But he was also calling Brad and working on ideas. Um, they were working on something for, I want to say Hurricane Katrina or something like that. Hmm. Was it John was Barnes? Yes, it was. John it was Barnes. John Barnes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I've, I've had several meetings over the last five, six years with John Barnes, nicest guy in the world. 
And he, you know, in a lot of ways, he was sort of Brad before there was a Brad. You know what I mean? So Michael would work on new ideas with John Barnes, and at some point, you know, I think uh, he, uh, Brad Buxer, and Michael just kind of gelled, and uh, and you know, Brad could be reached twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, and I think Michael really liked that. And then Brad sort of became, you know, the go to guy for collaborating on new songs, but. Uh, so even when Michael was working with John Barnes, he was calling Brad and giving him ideas. And there were several songs, but the one I remember the most, uh, it was going to be for the Hurricane Katrina victims. And I can't remember what the name of the darn thing was. Was it um, From the Bottom of My Heart? It might have been. Uh, if I heard the music, I would know because it, it had a couple different, uh, different working titles. And, uh, uh, but the big picture all in there was by, and, and you'll have to excuse me because I don't really remember in like the years all that well, like, like what year did, did the second trial or did those things start to happen? Do you remember? Was it Michael 2000? Neverland? Yeah. Neverland was rated November 18th, 2003. Oh. So literally right when that number one's project was released. Right when one more your work on one more chance was released, literally that very week, Michael Neverland was raided, and and that's must be somewhere around when um when what more can I give came out. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So, Michael had wow. done the um, Billboard Music Awards where he debuted "What More Can I Give." The internet single came out. Um, one more chance was uh, being released in uh, November two thousand three. It was actually a, a very, very active sort of. Um, you have to keep in mind. Earlier in two thousand three was the Martin Bashir interview, which was, you know, it kind of tarnished Michael's brand a little bit. So by the end of the year, uh, it was almost clear he was sort of working on a on a musical musical comeback um, that was very dramatically violated by by the, by what became the trial. So you know, I, I've always as a fan just been curious where. That would have gone. Where? What would 2004 have looked like, or 2005 have looked like for Michael if it weren't for the trial? And, I was, and I'm just wondering if if he talked about that. Well, the one thing that I remember is in 2002 and three, a lot of people in the film industry were coming up to visit him. Uh, big directors, big producers, people that he had known for years or friends of people that he knew. And we would be in the dance studio, we had all the equipment set up working on a new song, and Michael would come in there with them, and he'd go, oh, this is, I don't remember anybody's name, but he did, and he'd mentioned three big giant films, I'm going like, wow, you know, what's this guy doing here, you know? But Michael knew everybody, you know? Um, and Michael made it <clears throat> a point to tell Brad and myself, and I'm sure he told others, uh, I don't want to hear any more talk about touring. He wanted to um, either act um, or produce or direct or do music for for film. In fact, Michael and Brad wrote about, oh gosh, five or six different little things hoping to get it into the movie called The Green Hornet. 
I don't think they ever made it into the movie. They were working on a lot of different things. And Michael really, and I think this speaks to the fact that here is somebody who has now been, what, touring for on and off for at least, is it 40 years or 38 years or quite a few years, you know? And he really wanted to somehow break into uh, the movie business. And he, he didn't really care so much if he was an actor or a director, but he felt he had learned enough and was a real student of film, as he was of music, to be able to be given the reins and direct um, and or produce a, uh, a full-fledged motion picture. And I think that's why some of these gentlemen were coming up uh, uh, to the ranch, is Michael was talking to them in earnest about trying to do that, you know? And um, I think a lot of it was just knowing how how much of a stress touring put on him, you know, physically. And, and that uh, he would love to have just, I think, been a big director slash actor for the rest of his life. And it, it just didn't happen the way he, he wanted. He was really hoping, and I'll, I don't know if many people know this, he really tried to get that Johnny Depp role in, um, was it Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory or something like that? And he was also hoping to get that, that role in that movie Powder, which I think he would have been great in. But uh, the thing is, is when you're Michael Jackson and you're so well known as being Michael Jackson one of the world's greatest singers and dancers, it's hard. I mean, Hollywood, the industry really typecasts you. Um, Just like they do if you're a TV actor that does comedies, nobody's going to hire you for a drama. Um, If you're a TV actor, nobody wants you to do movies. You know, if you write music for television, nobody really wants to give you a chance to write music for film because it's a, a different thing. And it's not. You know what I mean? But it's all these little clubs, you know what I mean? And everybody, you know, well, that's just how the music business is. And that's how the the film business is and the TV business. I mean, once you're something, you, they figure, well, you, you can't be that and that, you know. And some of the biggest stars obviously have proven that that's not true. You can have a TV career and a film career. And you can actually have a TV career and have a band and have some hit songs and go on tour and have a lot of fun like Rick Springfield. He made it clear that he didn't want us <laughs> to bring up the word tour. Mm. And it, it has been rumored over the years that Michael was working on music even during the 2004-2005 period of the trial as kind of a catharsis and, uh, and a distraction. Um, were you involved in any sessions with Michael around that period? We were up at the ranch, Brad and I, in two separate rooms and two separate studios set up. And uh, we were working on things up until about two weeks before the trial. And I, and I think this was a mistake on the attorney's part um, because they told Michael's brother, Randy and Evie, that they thought that this music was a distraction and they wanted Michael's full attention in preparing for the trial. So they said, okay, you guys need to pack up your stuff and, and head back to your, you know, your studios at your houses, which we did. 
and you know still kept in in touch with Michael but I think it would have been much better had we at least kept one of the writing systems up there so that Michael would have this this release because for him that was it was like meditation it was his yoga it was you know it was what allowed it gave him um, a uh, an artistic release and I think that would have been very very good for him you know
Hi, this is Scott Ross, lead investigator on the Michael Jackson trial, and you are listening to the MJ cast. Thank you for listening. In recent years, there have been some leaks of the songs that you worked with Michael on in his final years, uh, songs like Days in Gloucestershire, mm-hmm. or as Michael calls it, Gloucestershire. No, no, no. <laughs> no. Gloucestershire. Gloucestershire. <laughs> Gloucestershire. And, uh, and I Am a Loser in particular, mm-hmm. uh, went down very well when it was leaked with the fans. I Am A Loser seemed to be a song that was being continually worked on. Is there, could you, could you give us an idea of the evolution of that song? Yeah, that's a song that, um, don't ask me what year it was, but we were up at the ranch and, and uh, uh, Brad had uh, just broken up with this really pretty girlfriend maybe more than a girlfriend. And I think she just at some point had enough of this 24 seven life that, that Brad had to sort of dedicate himself to, to Michael. And, um, Brad was walking around and I think this might've been in Vegas in a hotel, but I'm not sure. Um, and he was saying out loud, um, I'm a loser. I'm a loser. And he was getting mad at him. Just he was worked up. He, he was just really upset. And he kept saying, I'm a loser. I'm a loser. And then Michael knocked on the door and said, what's going on? And then Brad told him the story. And um, and that's how that song was born, you know, and, and the original uh, title was called. I am a loser. And um, and it was that for a long time. Uh, we worked on it mostly up at the ranch. And then um, the funny thing is, or an interesting thing is, in 2008, um, I was working with Michael um, on music and on vocals, and it was just the two of us, and we were at the Bel Air Hotel, and um, Michael, unbeknownst to me, I mean, was in L.A., that's when he was having all the meetings with AEG, but, you know, I did not know that, and it wasn't any of my business, so I'm just working on music, and then Michael looks at me one day and he goes, I, I need to re-sing the chorus on this song. I go, why? And he goes, well, I love the song. He goes, but I don't want people to think I am a loser. He said, it's okay if I was a loser and I'm not anymore. And I go, okay. I said, that makes sense. So um, we have a newer version of that song called I Was the Loser. And of course, I have both of them on, on the hard drive. But if Michael, if we were to release a version right now, the one that would make Michael happy was, I was the loser, not I am a loser. So it's the same song. We just resang the chorus. We, he resang the chorus. How, how do you feel about these songs sort of slowly leaking? Um, because when it happens, it's, it's a weird feeling for us because it's like, oh my goodness, we get to hear this amazing Michael Jackson material that we've never heard. But at the same time, there's this, twinge of um sadness for you guys who are the people that worked on them with michael having sort of no control over when they come out or how they come out well i mean it's my general um understanding that the reason or the way these songs got leaked is at some point we turned them all over to the estate and the estate turned them over to sony and sony had them on their server and somebody 
got into Sony's server, and they didn't just get Michael's stuff; they got other stuff. But but um, it 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 hurts to know that it's been released, just knowing that it hasn't been properly mixed. I mean, you know, uh, Bruce Wadeen is still alive. It's something that you know I've mentioned it to people at the estate before, but it hasn't really gone anywhere. Where I would love uh, for Brad and I to at least musically finish these. Brad still has notes on what Michael, you know, wanted, you know, done on the songs and, um, and touch them up a little bit and then, but not do what they've been doing on his last two records and get the producer of the moment and have him do all new music. That would, that to me is sacrilegious. You know, I mean, Michael signed off. If it has an MJA on it, that means Michael loved it the way it was. So, um, but it, but we knew it wasn't mixed like by Bruce or, I mean, I can even mix them, but I think, especially since, you know, Bruce is so connected to all of Michael's biggest hits, uh, while we still have that amazing genius on the planet, I, I would, you know, say Michael Prince, put those songs on a hard drive and fly to Florida and spend a month there with Bruce and get, get Bruce to do a final mix on these songs. And then put those out there for the fans because I don't want to hear those songs with, you know, somebody else's idea of what drum loop Michael might have liked on there. Yeah, exactly. And even in some of the cases like uh, where the quote-unquote original versions of uh, certain songs have come out, like let's take the Escape album, for example, on the second disc of that, uh, there are the original sort of demo recordings of some of those songs. She Was Loving Me is a perfect example. Now, that's a, mm-hmm. an absolutely brilliant Michael Jackson song and, and one of my favourites, yet we know that Corey Rooney, the original writer and producer of that song, isn't happy with the final mix. He didn't even get asked to mix that. Yep. Um, all I can say is that it's another example of somebody making bad decisions because if you are going to release the original version or say, call it the demo version or whatever you want to call it, why wouldn't you talk to the person that was actually working on it with Michael and say, which one do you think was the furthest one along or which one did Michael seem the happiest with? I think either Sony or the estate just went to the vault and sort of said, here's a version. And they don't know if it's the latest version or it's the middle version. They don't, I don't think they really know that, but yeah, I I'm aware of that. I know on with the two Dr. Frieza song, nobody called him, you know, and uh, that's, that's not really how you really want to find out what was the boss thinking, you know, what was the boss's favorite version, you know? And I, that's about all I want to say about that. But I do commend um, L.A. Reid for having that bonus album mm. with at least at least the attempt at, at putting the original uh, unadulterated, um, unmodernized, uh, whatever he called it, uh, version on there. Just because it sort of shows you, it shows you where the song was when Michael left, you know. And um, it might have been a different time. It might have been a slightly different sound, but it still was something that came out of his mind and the mind of who, whoever he wrote it with. So I had a meeting with Elliot Reed actually months, six months before the record came out, and he told me he was going to do that. 
And I thanked him for that, you know, not knowing what versions he was going to pick because it didn't really matter to me. But I, I said, you know, that's really what the fans want. You know, yeah. I said, they probably want that more than, you know, so-and-so's version of it, you know. And uh, so I'm glad he did that. I wish they would have done that on, um, on the Michael album. I think we could all agree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Blue Gangster, for example, is a, is a great example of what you're talking about. Like, there's, an, there's a, the version that's come out of that song on the second disc of the Escape album isn't the finished version. There was a leak years earlier of that with percussive elements that I think yourself and Brad worked on um, that are really, that take the song to a whole new level. And I don't know why that version didn't come out on the Escape album, but anyway. I, I think just because the people that worked on the album didn't take the time to ask the people that worked on the songs, which one Michael would have liked, yeah. you know, or which one they felt was the best. Like, why wouldn't you ask freeze? Hey, which version were you and Michael the happiest with? And just go with it. You know, I, I think sometimes people up in ivory towers tend to do things in a, in a bit of a bubble. I think posthumously, and it really wasn't a posthumous project for you, but uh, the This Is It soundtrack that you that you had first worked on, or I'm sorry, the This Is It film soundtrack versus the released soundtrack that you had worked on, uh, it won a Grammy too, didn't it? Or was nominated for Grammy? Won a Grammy. Well, I don't really know. Um, I I know, I know, I was fortunate enough to win something called. Uh, they have every year. They have the MPSE Awards, which is the uh, Motion Picture Engineering Society, and I won an award for best music editing on a music-based motion picture, which I thought was pretty cool. I'm still trying to get the knuckleheads that gave out the beautiful trophy to get the name plaque for it, which they were supposed to have within two weeks, and that's now coming on six years. And I, I, I wrote, I write them twice a year, and they go. Oh, you still don't have that? Oh, we're going to look into it again. I'm going like, okay. So now it's been another six months. It's about time for me. If I if I turn this friend of mine, Maureen, loose on them, they'll rue the day they did not get me that plaque because she doesn't <laughs> give up. I do. I just I make one or two calls and I, I just go. I'll call them again in a year. Well, it's very well, well done and very well deserved. And what a prime example of what working with the people who knew Michael and loved Michael, the people that Michael trusted, what what a shining example. Really, it's the only posthumous non-Cirque du Soleil hit that was released, and it, it sort of baffles me why they wouldn't look at that stellar example and apply that to the other releases. Were, were you reached out? I mean, what, what the Michael album, the Escape album, I guess you wouldn't have really been contacted for Bad 25 or, or anything, but what, no. what's the process like in a posthumous release? Uh, or what has it been for you? Well, uh, to a certain extent, like I said, there are people who seem to be operating in a bit of a vacuum. Now, I'm sure, well, I'm not sure. I'd like to think had I worked on the Bad album, somebody might have called me, but maybe not. I mean, I did work on, when Michael was still alive, all those things like the ultimate was it called the ultimate collection or something like that? And yeah, ultimate collection, and the number ones. And there were a few other things that we did in that, in that period. Um, I don't even remember what they are, 
but uh, Thriller Twenty Five, maybe. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not really sure if I worked on that or not. I may have, um, but I know that after MJ passed away, and I worked on the the movie This Is It, which was one of the hardest things I've ever done, both from just a an emotional point of view. It was like I remember um, I worked on Michael's memorial service which was hard enough. Uh, and it, it was, you know, it was something that you felt you wanted to do and you needed to do. And the busier you can stay in times of grief, I have learned, um, in a way, the better it is for you. Sometimes it just means you're postponing mourning or, or your real grief until later when things kind of quiet down. But I think it does sort of help you. And, uh, and so while everybody's out there, you know, being sad at Michael's memorial, I'm back, you know, behind the curtain, you know, running all the, all the audio and stuff. And, uh, but I was happy to do it. And, and, uh, and then after that, I took my family on a, just a little sort of a camping vacation. Um, we have a little RV and we took it up to Northern California. We went to Yosemite, which is one of the most beautiful places on earth. And then we went to, um, Lake Tahoe there's another beautiful lake and some nice camping areas. And, and I remember I've, uh, I started getting a phone, a phone calls from a friend of mine, uh, Bill Chappelle, who um, was our front of house mixer for that show. An amazing, amazing mixer. It would have been the, one of the best sounding live shows you've ever heard. Uh, it was that good. Um, uh, and he said, hey, where are you? And I go, well, I'm up in Northern California. When are you coming home? I don't know. I go, why? What's important? You know? And he goes, well, he says, we, we've been looking at all the video and, and we've been listening to all the multi-tracks that we were making. And the multi-tracks, by the way, were being made just so you can do what's called a virtual sound check. So when the band's not there, you can run the audio back through the mixer and you can practice mixing it, make the drums sound better, make the, you know, add different EQs and compressors to things so you're ready, even more ready for the next rehearsal with the live band. So he says, we think we have enough here to do some sort of a documentary. I went, what? And I was like in shock, you know? And so I said, well, I'll be home in four or five days if that works for everybody. And, and it did. And so I, I got home and I remember driving down to AEG's office downtown. And that's where they had like all these little you know, Pro Tools system set up and video editing system set up. And wow, the first time I sat down and saw Michael in those raw rehearsals, uh, I just started crying, you know, and uh, it was it was hard. But in the long run, it made me so happy because I felt I was working on another Michael Jackson project. And it's as though Michael was there, you know, and you're seeing him every day and you're hearing his voice and you're listening to him talk. And it, it was, it was really like a, a joy of uh, a journey of joy and grief at the same time. And I remember when we finally finished that project, it was really hard to finish because they kept changing days on us and different different performances. And so you had to grab the audio from that day, you know, and try to blend it with the audio from three days earlier, where it sounded a little bit different. So it was just it was. It was a lot of work, but when we finally got finished mixing the whole thing and we played it for, you know, everybody that worked on the movie, they had like a family and friends day. Then I remember them going, well, Michael Prince, 
I think today was your last day. Um, it sounds great. You're done. And I just remember feeling that same lost sadness that I felt the same day that Michael passed away, just packing up my stuff for the second time, you know, calling the guy with the truck, having him come pick it up and having it delivered at, at my house, you know, and, and to wind the clock back to June 25th. I, I just remember I had notes from the night of June 24th from speaking to Michael about things that needed to be changed on three or four songs. And even after Michael, it was announced that he had passed away, I still felt I had to finish at least all the things that I had promised I would do. And so I, I did all that. And and now it's like two or three in the afternoon and I'm just walking around in a daze like everybody else. And I finally went to the production office and I talked to the head of production, really great man named Bugsy. And I said, Bugsy, I don't know what to do. And I meant it. Like I was like probably in shock. And he looked up at me and he goes, you need to go and pack up your equipment and you need to go home. And I mean, I really had to hear somebody just say it to me like that in order for me to go and pack up my equipment, unplug it and, and go home. And that was rough, you know, and, and it was sort of the same thing at the end of this is it, but at least now we had something that I think really showed how hard Michael, the dancers, the band, how hard everybody worked and, and, you know, how it started and where we ended up. And Michael still, you know, for those of us that have worked with him before and know him well, knew him well, um, Michael was dancing at like 25% of what he was capable of. He was singing at 15% of what he was capable of. Because for Michael, those were just, you know, camera blocking, trying to show the lighting guy where he was going to stand, you know, looking at video and saying, okay, that needs to have more blue in it. I mean, Michael... You know, I always thought of uh, the tour as Michael's sandbox. That was a giant toy for Michael. And he understood every nook and cranny of that stage. He understood lighting. I love that one little scene in, in, uh, in the movie, This Is It, where, um, you know, Kenny says something to him like, Michael, uh, we should start the next song. And Michael goes, I'm sizzling. And Michael knew, you know that there were these sizzle moments and if you guys have ever seen like him play or or videos michael knows there's times in the show where he can stand there for three minutes and just you know wiggle a shoulder and the audience will go crazy for 30 seconds you know so michael was you know starting to in his head build all those things into the show and uh it, it was going to be unbelievably magical that show and hopefully we captured a little bit of it in the movie. I think you absolutely did. And it, like the thing is, it's when that film came out, it was an incredibly healing experience for a lot of fans to go and see. And say what you want about it now. Like a lot of people now, I guess, look at that project and look at that film through different eyes, knowing what we do now about the way... Michael was being treated, I guess, during 2009. But during, mm. but during that time when the film came out, it gave the fans, uh, a lot of us, a massive sense of closure 
and um, calming. And we we understood where Michael was going with that project and we could get a real sense of what it was going to be like and the genius behind it. So I think, um, yeah, it was a very important project to come out and it definitely helped myself and a lot of other fans when we saw it. It was incredible to watch. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear hear that, and and I know it was, it was good for even my 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 wife loved Michael. I mean, she came with me to the ranch many times. She was on tour with us for weeks at a time with the kids. The kids loved Michael. Uh, they loved watching that. In fact, I know my wife came with me to the to the um, premiere. I I don't remember if we were able to bring the children or not, um, but I mean, they loved Michael to death, you know, and uh, and so did my wife. Oh, it was a huge film. It was a massive movie. Like at the time, I think it was the largest grossing music documentary of all time. Um, and James, on our, in our previous episode of the MJ cast, you were talking about how China as a music market was really starting to open up at that time. And, and I know that film was a massive hit in China. Uh, my wife's actually from China and, and uh, I know that how that country works is they only allow a certain amount of um, Western movies to be shown each year in their major cinemas. And This Is It was one sure. of them in 2009. And uh, it catapulted Michael to a new level of fame, I think, in, in mainland China. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, it was <laughs> just an incredible thing to see. Um, and and it's my understanding that you actually comped uh, a lot of the vocals for that film. And at some point, something I'm interested in, at some point you obviously made a decision or somebody made a decision to, to not use, in some instances, a lot of the raw vocals that Michael recorded, but instead use some demo vocals like Earth Songs demo and things like that. Now, I actually think when I was watching it, I, I, under, I really did understand the choice for that and it really showed uh, Michael... In, in a in a in the songs in a, in a state of completion and genius uh, that really resonated with the audience was that was that your decision to use those the, the demo vocals rather than the live vocals to show it as a more completed thing or e- e- well it was at least fifty percent my decision um, I don't want to take credit um, because it, it was a committee you know what I mean and uh, my job was to get it to fit into there but. You know, I remember saying, you know, early on, I go, look, and the other thing, I'll say this as a sort of interrupting myself, I went through great pains on that, on that movie. If they were going to use any part of a vocal previously from a, a previous tour that was directly from an album, I went through there and worked hard to get some of the little idiosyncratic sounds that you know you would never hear live and remove those from the vocal you know and i did i did that you know and and um and in fact you know a lot of artists that are out there these days that are using a a pre-recorded vocal don't use one from the album they go into a studio and they re-sing a new one you know because they want it to be a little bit different you know michael just never had the time or took the time to do that. We did talk to him about it for the, for the This Is It tour, and we did set up a little studio, and the idea was to have some fresh, non-album versions of these songs. And we actually did start, you know, I've, I've got some of his vocals, uh, a little bit of Stranger in Moscow, a little bit of Start in Something, and, um, and, and then he and I had 
you know, many nice long talks in his dressing room, just the two of us. And he, over a, a, peak of, a, a period of a week or two, expressed to me that he really didn't want to do that anymore. You know, he said, if we are going to do it, I want just you and I pick a studio. Nobody else is there and, and we'll do it. And then about a week later, he called me into his dressing room and he goes, you know what? He goes, I'd like to just sing live more. And if we have to use something, we'll use what we used in the past. And I already made up my mind if that was going to happen, I was going to take out any little foot clicks or little extra things that you normally wouldn't hear live. And I said, hey, you know, it's your show. You're the boss. I said, that's your decision. I said, I stand by any decision you make, you know. So that's when we stopped working on trying to record new uh new vocals for that tour so you uh you just mentioned stranger in moscow and um there were various other songs which uh it's been said over the years were planned for inclusion but uh didn't make it into the film for whatever reason so we see off cuts in the bonus features of michael singing don't stop till you get enough um i've heard it said there was some sort of Will You Be There, Heal the World mashup that was planned. Are you able to shed some light on some of the other um, ideas that were considered or slated for inclusion, which we didn't see in the film? Well, I mean, I, I know Stranger in Moscow, like, as you mentioned, uh, the the mashup between, um, uh, it was Will You Be There and it might have been Heal the World, Oh my God, that was one of the hardest things I ever did, you know, because you've got two songs that have hundreds of tracks of audio in them, and you're trying to marry them without blowing up your system. And, um, and you know, you have to figure out what bar, you know, you're going to switch to the other song and try to get the tempos close and stuff. That was, that was like almost a one week project in itself. I think that's the one that. I'm thinking about uh, when it was, we are the world. I'm not, well, it was two giant songs. It might've been the two you mentioned. Uh, the main thing is some of those songs we had not yet rehearsed. Uh, and because of that, there was no video of them and there was no audio of them. I kind of had a feeling we never rehearsed. We hadn't rehearsed stranger in Moscow yet. Um, Michael was having, Michael was having a tough time cutting songs because by now there were so many of them, you know, and, you know, you had new songs you wanted to add. You had songs that did not get played on the history tour that they said, well, gosh, you didn't do that on the history tour. Why don't you put that back in the show? Like Dirty Diana was going to go into the show. And so I remember like Kenny um, Ortega would say, Michael, um, you need to think about this. We need to cut another two or three songs. And Michael, <laughs> he goes, these are like my kids, you know, and it's just like, I, I can't just cut these songs out. So that was one of the hardest things for Michael to do was to figure out what songs he was going to have to just, you know, give the ax to. That was rough, you know, and we still hadn't gotten the show as short as it needed to be. You know, when I say short, Michael was doing a really long show but he had so much material, you know. Um, I do have, I don't know if I have it in this computer. Hold on. Um, 
I might have the final set list. Um, let me see here. Um, okay. Let's let's see if anything pops up here. The final Pro Tools file was called. Uh, I think it was called MJ UK Master. Let me just see if it's in here. If not, it's on one of a thousand hard drives I have, and I'll just put UK Master. Let me see. Danger is uh, here. MJ UK Master. Let me find the latest. It says 625.09. Let's open that one up. Yeah, we're going to start with starting something. And then don't stop till you get enough. And you guys, that's the one. You said you heard part of that on the, the uh, outtakes, right? Yeah, so there's just a don't stop till you get enough. So does, are you saying that Michael was going to perform that song in full in the show? Um, well, I, I want to say full, but it might have been an abbreviated version. You know, a lot of these songs we were maybe yeah. maybe going to do like one verse and a chorus and a dance section and a chorus, you know, and rather than do the entire song. But uh, Don't don't Stop was going to be the second song in the set. And then uh, Rock With You. And then uh, we were going to do Drill. And, you know, Drill is that opening section to They Don't Care About Us, I think. Let me see, where's Drill? Drill anywhere? Oh, yeah, there it is. Um, Drill and into an abbreviated version of They Don't Care About Us. And then... Um, and then Human Nature, and then Stranger in Moscow, and then Smooth Criminal, and then The Way You Make Me Feel, you know, the slow version of the fat, much like it is in, um, in the film, if I remember correctly. Uh, and then uh, You Are Not Alone, and then... Of course, it says, you are not alone. It says DNU, which means do not use. So it might have been one that I had programmed and then we decided it wasn't going to be in the set. So don't quote me on that. And then <laughs> I just can't stop loving you. And then dangerous. And then dirty Diana. And then beat it. And then... Thriller, which was going to have that cool ending on it. You know, the dun, 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 dun. I think it's Threatened, right? Yeah, thre it was like an uh, instrumental version of Threatened. Amazing. Yeah, I love that part. Um, and then uh, Earth Song. And then, oh, yeah, this was the big thing. It was it was uh, We Are the World and Heal, Heal the World. Yeah. Getting, getting those two songs married to each other. And then uh, Black or White, and then Billie Jean, and then, uh, now it says, will you be there, and it says DNU, so maybe as of the 25th of June, we were not doing that song, because some of them, you know, we, we learned more songs than we, we could actually fit into the show. Yeah. And then uh, Man in the Mirror, which as far as I know, Yep, Man in the Mirror was going to be the encore, the final song. That's it. So so no plans for any new music during the show, is that right? You know what? I, I think what was going to happen is once we got this much learned, um, Michael told me that once we got to the UK, 
we were going to, because, you know, as soon as we started rehearsing, we stopped working on all new material. You know, I'd been going to his house and working, you know, with Michael some days with uh, a guy named Ron Feimster, also known as Nephew, on, on, on new stuff. And, you know, but some of the stuff Nephew was working on was just rehashing some of the stuff that Brad and Michael had worked on, you know, like just with different piano sounds or different drum sounds. And so not all of them were like, you know, new, new stuff, but we did have some new stuff. I probably have 20 titles on a hard drive of stuff that Michael and Nephew were working on. And, uh, and then um, Michael said, well, once we got to the UK and got settled in, I was going to bring all my uh, gear over to his house and on our days off when we went, when he had the energy and I did, then we were going to continue to work on new songs. And, and this is something that at, when he first said it to me, I thought, what is he talking about? And then I realized within about two minutes that it was genius. He goes, I'm not going to release albums anymore. We're just going to put out a single every couple of months. Because, you know, we all come from the land of albums, you know what I mean? And, and as, so at first when he said that, I thought, why would he say that? And then literally within a few minutes, I realized it would solve so many things. A, you're already touring, right? So you've got this buzz going on because you're playing, you know, and it wasn't just going to be London. It was going to be all, all over the world. And you release a single. So you're only trying to sell one song. It's a whole new world now. And he realized that it was all digital. It can be a worldwide release, the stroke of a pen. And, uh, and then what he could do is after you do about eight or 10 singles over the period course of, let's say a year, you do two new songs and repackage it as a as an album. And I, I think that was genius. I really do now that I think about it.
This is Damien Shields, author of Escape Origins, the songs and stories that Michael Jackson left behind, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. What were some of his favorite titles that uh, um, you'd imagine well, there, you would have worked on? There's a famous yellow sheet of paper with his, his handwriting, and the pictures were taken or obtained by TMZ. That they were in his bedroom, uh, and it was on the wall uh, in his bedroom, and I. Don't know if I have that picture in front of me. Um, I can almost um, uh, remember most of <laughs> the text yeah, written you, on if, it. <laughs> if you've seen that, that that I think that I think was in his mind the list of his like ten, twelve, fourteen. I don't remember how many were on there. Most important songs, you know. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, none of those songs. Uh, were from the Casio collection, which I find interesting. Us too. (laughs) What is fascinating about that is I believe, I I might be wrong, I might be wrong, but um, one of the last, one of the final songs Michael was working on uh, in the last 10 years of his life was Monster, as you know. Um, And that also was a song that allegedly was recorded with Eddie Casio in 2007 and came out on that Michael album. Yeah, uh, but that's not that's not the same monster. It's right. a completely different song. Exactly. And and we stopped working on Monster in 2001. When the album came out and it wasn't going to be on the album, Michael never brought that song up again. <laughs> good chorus. Really good chorus. That's the only part Michael sang. He sang the chorus. I don't know if he'd even written uh, the verses, you know, by that time, I mean, in 2001, when the album came out, I mean, you had so many songs that Michael had started, Michael and Brad had started, uh, Michael and Nephew had started, Michael and Rodney had started, you know, and then, you know, you've got the few that came from, 
oh gosh, uh, was it Carol Bayer Sager? And, yeah, um, we she did. We've had enough, I think. Yeah, okay. yeah. And um, and then of course you know Teddy. I'm not really sure what Teddy wrote that made it onto the album, truthfully, because I've never really looked at the titles or anything. But I mean, there were so many songs that got pushed to the wayside just because newer stuff kept coming in all the time. You know, so and, and once you sort of passed on a song, you didn't work on it anymore. But uh, but that list, that yellow piece of paper, if anybody has that anywhere, I know I, know I have it. It's, it's in one of my computers because I saved it. I did a screenshot of it or something like that. Um, I, I think a lot of fans, us included, know a lot of them um, from memory. And, and, and many of them have either leaked been yeah. released posthumously. And, and I, think, I think one that I identify as one of my personal favorites um, is Hollywood Tonight. And uh, mm. I know that one goes... Damien Shields has done some excellent reporting on that, and um, I know that one kind of goes way back. Um, oh yeah, was that a favorite of Michael's? It was, but you know, if you look at the fact that it didn't make it onto the um, uh, Invincible album, it shows you that he didn't feel it was as strong as what made it on the Invincible album. You know, but you know, maybe in that case, if he would have asked me, I would have said, "Well, yeah, I think it, I think it should be on there." You know, but. You know that was that you know that was a Michael decision. Hollywood tonight, I still I still love that song. In fact, they weren't even gonna they weren't even aware of that song when they were working on the Michael album. And and I remember speaking to someone, I won't mention any names, mentioning that that was one of the last songs that Michael wanted to work on again. That Michael wanted to listen to again. That Michael wanted to maybe add a vocal thing to. And and when they heard that, they said, well, can we hear it? And I played it for me and ended up being on the record. Of course, a changed version, you know. Yeah, because it's clear that the demo has um, the vocals that didn't come out on the uh, the final version. Like, I'm pretty sure the demo doesn't, doesn't he sing She Was Only 15? And then on the final version, yeah. that, that line isn't even in there. Why would they take that out? Who, uh, did you, who took that out? Was that, that would have been Teddy's production team, right? Yeah, it was probably it was probably an idea that Teddy floated to the um, to the label, and the label said, "You know what? That's that's not a bad idea. Take that out." And Teddy also wrote that spoken bridge part, and um, uh, you know, I can't really say that that's my favorite part of the song either. But I mean, it did need something there. Yeah. You know, um, you know I mean. Maybe a guitar solo would have been more interesting or something. I don't know. But uh, there's a handwritten lyrics of the bridge, isn't there, that Michael wrote um, that people haven't heard before. And usually when Michael wrote handwritten lyrics, something would have been recorded for that, like maybe even a melody or something like that. In the final version of Hollywood Tonight that you've heard, is there is it more complete than the version on the album? Mm, I like it much better than the version that's on the album. Yeah, um, I I haven't listened to it in a while. I, I I couldn't tell you, you know. But I mean, I know that the the version I've listened to the most uh, when we get to the bridge, Michael's sort of talking, and you can hear him saying, "Okay, the drums stay in here," and he's saying other little things that are almost like a producer. But I'm not sure that I was even aware he had written lyrics to the bridge until. I heard it from, uh, probably from Damien, mm. you know? Yeah. Because you're right. I mean, if he had written words to the bridge, why wouldn't they have used 
the words Michael wrote, even if somebody had to speak it because they didn't know what the melody was, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I'm pretty sure nobody took the time again, you know, to really go back and, and like, I don't know where, where they found those lyrics. That, that, that'd be interesting to find out where, where those lyrics were. Mm. Like I said, Brad has what's called a, um, well, it's a big road case and it's full of what we call song packets. And the song packet basically is a big manila envelope that has everything that we have paperwork wise, CD wise, rough mix wise and notes about the song, you know? And so, um, some of them are quite full and some of them have two CDs in them, depending on how much time we spent working on these or how much development went into the song. One of my goals is to get to Brad's house sometime next year and go through the song packets and, and, and photograph or, or, you know, Xerox, wherever they say, you know, we call it a scan, all the written parts that are in those things. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and some of them are like, if, if Brad wrote like a string part or, you know, like uh, multiple string parts, you know, like for a string section to play, he would actually write that stuff out all on music staff paper. So some of it is, is music notation as well. Michael Prince, you've, um, you've mentioned a few times during this conversation, people not taking the time since Michael's death to properly research and put together these posthumous uh, products. And when you consider uh, two things, firstly, Michael's stature as an artist, and secondly, his perfectionism, as somebody who worked with him so closely, uh, how does it make you feel to see his work being treated in that way? Oh, more than anything, a little bit sad, not angry at all, and, and just makes me question, you know, who decides who to call and who not to call, um, because I can't imagine, and I, you know, for, forget about me, I can't imagine somebody working on Hollywood Tonight without at least phoning Brad Buxer, who co-wrote that song, and saying, can you come down to the studio for a couple days and tell us, you know, where Michael was headed with this song? It was, it's almost like they sort of wanted to, do, to divorce, some, in many cases, the writers of the songs from the songs. Yes. Uh, so we've spoken about uh, some of the songs that Michael was working on that didn't come to fruition before he passed away. But there was also um, a performance that never came to fruition, which was about a year before This Is It. Uh, it was designed as a Grammy performance to promote Thriller 25. Michael went into dance rehearsals with Lavelle, I believe. But then it all got called off quite last minute. Um I understand you were involved in some way, perhaps in putting together the music. I just wondered what recollections you have about that performance, what it was going to be and, and why it never came to be. Um, what year would have would that have been? Because the Grammys are usually in February. So were you talking about 2008 or nine? Uh, eight. Eight. Um, I don't think I worked on anything for the Grammys. Lavelle was up there... But in 2008, before I came up there, I want to say I came up more in May or June of that year, which would have been way after the Grammys. Okay. You know, right. in, in earlier 2008, I want to say Nephew was going up there and back. Michael was doing a little bit of work at um, 
at the recording studio at uh, the Palms Hotel. And um, and I think I know Brad was up there uh, quite a bit in 2007. And I'm trying to think when the last time I was up there with Brad, I didn't get up there till I want to say the middle of 2008. And uh, it was an interesting time because Michael had um, Lavelle staying in one hotel and he had <clears throat> nephew and I staying in a different hotel and we would usually go on different days. So, I mean, even though I'd known Lavelle for a long time, you know, I hardly ever saw him. So every once in a while, um, I would just call him and, you know, some days none of us had to work. So I would go to his hotel and we would just have dinner or something like that. And then I'd go back to my hotel. But, um, uh, you know, Lavelle went, we call them their dance days and music days. So Lavelle would go on dance days and we would, and, and either I or nephew and I, and sometimes just nephew, uh, would go on uh, on music days, and uh, uh, it was in- interesting because we worked throughout the summer on and off, and then we were there one day um, working on new stuff, and went to the hotel, and we're planning on coming back at let's say you know ten in the morning or something like that, and we're at the hotel and we get a call, going, um, okay, uh, we're going to Los Angeles tomorrow. I went, we're going to Los Angeles tomorrow. And he goes, yeah. Um, so in the morning, we'll, we'll send a, a vehicle for you. Just come over here and get the stuff that you really absolutely have to have. And then we're just uh, going to start working in Los Angeles for a little while. I went, okay. And I thought they meant we're going to Los Angeles for a week. Well, we never went back to Las Vegas. That's when Michael was starting, unbeknownst to any of us, these talks with AEG. That's when he moved at first to the uh, the Bel Air Hotel. So the next time I see him, you know, nephew calls me and he goes, hey, Michael wants us to come to his place at the Bel Air Hotel. I went, okay. So we set up a whole little thing in there. And then, you know, Michael would tell me, he goes, I'm not moving here. He says, I'm only here for business reasons. I still didn't know what was going on. Um, because I don't pry, you know, if Michael wants to tell me something, he can tell me, but I'm not going to pressure him. That, that just isn't our relationship. So, you know, then I, you know, it was shortly after that when, you know, he starts, you know, mentioning AEG and stuff like that. And, um, I don't even remember what the question is anymore, but, uh, I did not work on anything for the Grammys in 2008. I've got it. We will. We're going to return a little bit to, to talking about this. Is it not so much the film, but the actual era, um, and and everything that was happening there. Um, but I've got a, a quick question just around um, some very mysterious songs uh, that fans really don't know a lot about. Uh, not only was Michael working with people like um, yourself, but also nephew and. Mm-hmm. Uh, different people in the last years of his life, but there's there's reports that Michael was also working with Will I Am. No one's ever heard these songs. No one really knows much about them at all. Did Michael ever talk to you about the tracks he was working on with Will I Am? No. Um, anybody that's worked with Michael long enough, not just work, but be, sort of become his friend, realizes Michael really liked to compartmentalize his life. Mm. Um, in other words, he didn't really want 
Lavelle and I coming normally on the same day, unless he needed me to work with Lavelle, which I did a lot of times on, you know, coming up with, you know, slicing and dicing songs up so they fit like a dance routine better or something like that. Um, and, and so he wouldn't necessarily have ever talked to me about who else he was writing with because those were all like separate little shelves on his big bookcase, you know, and, and they weren't supposed to really like intertwine. Um, and it wasn't always just music. It was other things too. But, uh, uh, I remember one day we were at the Baylor hotel and, and we were getting four or maybe five songs ready to play for Rod Temperton. And, um, Rod was going to come over to Michael's suite around five o'clock. Well, I was supposed to be gone before five o'clock. Right. And so that shows you the picture. Like there's nothing wrong with me being there. I know Rod. I've worked with Rod before on other projects just that Rod was working on and stuff. And so I remember it took longer than we wanted it to, to get these songs ready. And I actually, gave Mike a little lesson how to play them in Pro Tools because they had them all in Pro Tools. He could just hit play, click on the name of the song, hit play. So he was fine with that. And everything took a little bit longer just to really show him and make sure it was all dialed in and sounding perfect. And then all of a sudden, because Rod is just English guy who's always early. And so it's <laughs> 10 till 5. I was three minutes away from being ready to leave. And all of a sudden there's bang, bang, bang at the door. Actually, it's knock, knock, knock. But um, and then Michael looks at me like wide-eyed, and he goes over and he looks out the you know the little peephole through the door, and he looks back at me. And he goes, "It's Rod." <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm going like, "Yeah, he's supposed to be coming over around now." And he goes, "What do we do?" Like that. I go, "How about uh, I get up." And I walk over to the door, and you open it, and I shake his hand, and I leave and get it, uh, go out to my car. He goes, okay, because he didn't want me to see Rod, and, he, and Rod, and he didn't want Rod to see me. For no, not a reason like anything antagonistic or evil, it was just, I'm done with Michael Prince. He's got me all ready to meet with Rod. Now I'm meeting with Rod, you know? And I just, it was, it was very, in a way, it was very humorous to me, but insightful at the same time hmm. make sense total sense thank you but did you want to mention any weird names of songs that i may or may not know yeah i there's a there's a bunch i mean so like and a lot of them you know you you may just have exposure from just from being in michael's network you may not have even worked on but um like songs like uh man in black or sometimes referred to as men in black it's a brian lorenz song uh, no, a little before, a little before one. your time. Yeah. Um, uh, songs with um, I can never say his name right. Walter. Uh, oh, and he, Walter A. I call him Walter A. <laughs> I gave up trying to say his name. Yeah, there's there's a whole like there's three or four I think Invincible era songs that he Fall Again. I, I know is one of them. We all know that. Oh one, wow, great song. Yeah. Great. Yeah, that is a, a beautiful song. I can't believe he didn't. Michael did not want to snap that one up. Um, I can't either. Uh, what what what's up with? Uh, do you do you? 
I get this sense that Invincible, even though he took a lot of time on it, it was it kind of a rushed album? There's, it just seems like there's so much left on the table. Well, no, it's it's that he shifted gears a couple times. You know, like originally, I think Nepi was going to be one of the major contributors to that record. You know, as well as you know just Michael and the songs he was writing with Brad, as well as um, uh, David Foster and just some really well-known writers. You know, and I didn't know this until I talked to Teddy. Um, in 2010 on the Michael album um, that Rodney was um, mentored by, by Teddy, right? So, uh, and Teddy had spoken to Michael about Rodney very highly and said, man, this, this kid is just on it, you know, and he, he just writes incredible drum beats and stuff. And so I think once he told Michael that, uh, and Michael called Rodney, and Rodney came in with his crew. Michael really thought, well, maybe I should build this album around around Rodney, like I sort of built Dangerous around Teddy, you know, um, to a certain extent, you know. Um, and and so, like I said, all of a sudden, a bunch of nephews' ideas just went, you know what I mean? And what he ended up with one song on that record, you know. So. Um, there's definitely a lot of stuff that were that was in the fringes that that probably should not have been dropped and should have gone on the record. But you know, like I said, I think those decisions were really were really Michael's in the very end. So were there other Walter A songs? Uh, uh, I think I, I think a title one of the titles might be Angel or something. Anyone know? Angel. I thought Babyface was connected to that one though. Oh, perhaps, yeah. Don't know. He might no. be. I mean, I, I know Michael wrote a lot with with uh, Baby, not a lot, but I know he's written stuff with Babyface. I know that. Um, I think Jermaine was getting ready to work with. It was either L.A. and Babyface or or Jam and Lewis. I get the story mixed up, and I, and I forget who did I hear this from. Um, oh, I know who. Um, I can't say, but anyway, um, and Jermaine was getting ready to start a project with them, and then. This was during, I think, the Invincible time, uh, and Michael called them and hired them for six months and never used any song they wrote with him. Uh, and I might be wrong. It could be the history era, but it was yeah. one of those things where he just said, well, if they're that good, I want to work with them, you know? One song that I'd like to focus on just for a little bit is uh, one of my favorite Michael songs ever, and it's certainly the song I've listened to most out of any other song in the past, I'd say, six years since he passed away, and that's Best of Joy. Um, mm. It's so special to me, and I, I just write down to the lyrics, you know, the last line of the song, I mean, I Am Forever, is just so mm. hauntingly beautiful, and... I'd like to know from you, like, I mean, I've heard rumors that that was the last full vocal that Michael ever recorded. And I'm wondering whether you could tell us the story behind that song. Well, he had a rough vocal on there already, but um, I would say Best of Joy and um, I Was a Loser and there's one other song were the last three that, that we worked on. We we recorded all those vocals at the Bel Air Hotel. Bel Air Hotel. Once we got to the Carrollwood House, we were just sort of working on new music uh, with Nephew, and I don't believe we did 
a lead vocal at all. We did a few like vocal effects and things like that, but Michael never really sang at the Carolwood House. Uh, so that was one of the last, if not the last, one or two songs that he actually, you know, sang on for sure. Best of Joy. I, I and Best of Joy was one of those songs that was pulled from the tape vault. I had never heard of it before. Michael just Michael had a memory uh, for songs. Uh, that he had worked on, but also songs, almost anything that had been a hit in the last 30 years, Michael knew it and could sing it to you right off the bat. And uh, he said to me one day, he goes, uh, we need to call the vault and get a copy of Best of Joy. I went, I had never heard the title in my life. I went, okay. So this is like, you know, late summer 2008, and we're already in LA, and I, you know, I, I have the song transferred, you know, digitally into Pro Tools, and and picked up a hard drive and um and you know we set up the mic and and michael uh michael resang that now i didn't know this at the time and that's one of the songs that he sort of had ron a uh, themester sort of redo the music to and i spoke to brad about this uh a year and a half ago and i said yeah i don't i said i, I don't know who who the original music is just a drum machine and a friend of rose and brad goes i did that i went Oh, I didn't know that. Because, you know, this, when you get a hard drive, there's no documentation. You know, it's just a bunch of tracks, and you have to figure out what's what. So um, I thought that was interesting. Um, so there was another sort of, you know, thing that, that Brad and MJ had worked on that I wasn't even aware of. It, it might have been pre-1997, truthfully. I'm not really sure. The original music, I mean, the original idea. Yeah. Oh, well, it certainly went on to become something really beautiful. And he, his um, final vocal I've heard was, rec- you said earlier, was recorded in a hotel, I think you said. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. In the, ba- in the bathroom <laughs> of, his, <laughs> of, he, of his suite at the Beller Hotel. Wow. And did he, was it just, was that a very common thing for in his final years for him to re- record a lot of vocals or just it was a once-off sort of? It was very uncommon for him to record vocals. You know, he was truly upset uh, when the song he did with Akon was leaked. Um, and the name escapes me right now. You guys probably know what song. I'm Hold talking. My Hand. Hold My Hand. Beautiful song. Love it. We would sit there and just be talking, and he would just get this sad look on his face like, how could this happen? Because 20 years ago, this would not have happened, you know? And, you know, he, the song wasn't done. It wasn't to his liking yet, and somehow everybody in the world has a copy of it, you know, and that really upset him, you know, because he liked that song a lot. And um, I think that really changed his overall view of the big picture on when he should and shouldn't sing. I think that made him, pushed him to not wanting to put his voice on a song until it was for a record and they were getting ready to really go for it because he realized even a demo with his voice on it, if it got in the wrong hands, could end up on the internet. Well, it happened to him twice in a row within the space of 10 years or even less, eight years. It was uh, Escape actually leaked, um, Mm. I think in 2003 or something like that. Uh, and then hold my hand a few years later. So I could imagine. Oh, yeah. oh, I can only imagine what that would do to the mind of a perfectionist. Well, and it's like I, I talked to an engineer friend of mine, and 
he had flown over to Ireland several times with Rodney. Um, when, remember when Michael was staying at that that guy's really nice house? I forget what his name is. The the, the dancing guy, right? Flatly, something flatly. Yep, yep, yep. And um, and uh, I, I asked my friend, who's a good engineer as well. I said, um, I said, so you you went over there, Ronnie, a couple of times. He goes, yeah. He goes, but we never recorded any vocals, and that didn't surprise me, you know. And in all the conversations I've had with John Barnes, John Barnes spent more than a year in Bahrain working with Michael. I never came out and asked him, asked him, but he sort of intimated that Michael didn't sing over there at all. I think he just, he knew that once his vocal was on there, if somebody put it out, he had completely lost control of that song. And as long as it was an instrumental, it was, it was worthless. Quick side question, because just because you mentioned Ronnie Jerkins, can't get your weight off of me. A a legendary, unknown Rodney Jerkins unreleased track. Do you know anything about that one? Six seconds of it is leaked on the internet, or eight seconds. It's just the very beginning of his vocal. It's a very mysterious track. I'll just I'll I'll check if I have the word weight and uh, on my computer. I probably don't. Um, not if you say only eight seconds was leaked. Let's see. Wait. I have a song. No, I have it. It's, it's, it says it says get your weight off me. It says Michael oh. Jackson. Um, oh man. It's it's five minutes and seventeen seconds long. Um, The date on it is six twenty oh four. Wow, that's pretty. That's pretty. That's in the midst of the trial. Oh my gosh. Um, weight off of me, eighty five BPM studio calc. Somebody was figuring out like uh, delays and stuff for it, but so yeah, it's uh, like I said, it's I like it, and I've never heard it before. So there's there's a there's, wow there's. There's there's a treasure trove out there that uh, you know it's it's uh, I hope that uh, oh it, it's in the same folder with the original monster craze I don't know what craze is I'll have to listen to that one day I got stuff uh, in place with no names in here don't be missing Hollywood tonight in the back fall again I need, I got some songs I need to listen to at some point <laughs> I, again I mean I probably heard them before but um, what's what's Amazingly interesting is that 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 song you just played us can't get your weight off of me to yeah. me sounded like a very complete production and vocal mm, like yeah I'm surprised that song hasn't come out that sounds to me as strong as Escape and We've Had Enough and like it just goes back to that old story of the best songs from Invincible sort of not coming out on Invincible in some cases agree and wow what. Oh. That that is, I literally 
That sounds incredible. Well, I have my oh my god, I have my earphones in, so I didn't hear it that well, but I I could hear enough of it to sound like it sounds like a really good vocal and a really good song. Oh my god! <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I kind of wonder how how I got it. I know I had a couple hard drives at the well, end I of mean, Invincible that pretty much had everything on there, but this wasn't a final mix or a mix stem or anything, so it's kind of interesting. There's there's a couple titles that the fans go kind of crazy over, and that's one of them. Wow. it's I can't believe this song wasn't put on the, one of the last two records. Unless well, think- if, the, if the date is June of 2004... Uh, Ultimate Collection, I believe, was released in October 2004. Is it possible mm. that uh, it was maybe in contention for the Ultimate Collection? Sure. Because that's where We've Had Enough was released, uh, on the Ultimate Collection for the first time. Well, and they probably didn't want to, you know, if they think this, you know, they don't want to give you everything at once. So if they thought this song may have some, and I'd have to listen to the whole thing to really see, does it go somewhere? You know what I mean? Or or because Michael likes songs that kept, you know, building as they went. You know, and maybe and maybe the song uh wasn't completely developed. I wonder what craze is. What's craze? I'm not gonna listen to it, but it says Michael Jackson. It says it's six minutes long. Hmm. I'll have to check that one out. What a treasure trove you've got there. <laughs> so close to, to MJ like you, because for you, this is, I, I know you love the art and, and you have a, a bond with, with MJ that, that we'll never get to share. But uh, to you, it's, it's sort of just a, a day at work. But for us, it's like, oh my, like th- those few seconds you just played for us are like what we live for. I, you're making me want to take my headphones out and listen to it. You know, I, 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 di- I did not know that song was in my computer. Hey, well, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, honestly, that's something that I've talked to, you know, both Brad and the estate about. Like, um, you know, uh, one day, do you want to go through everything and really listen for stuff that you haven't found yet? And I go, sure. You know, just hire for, me. For I'll, sh- be, I'll be happy to do it. You know, and and. They, we almost were going to do that like a, six months or a year ago, and it just never transpired, you know, so.
Hi, this is Rob Hoffman, studio musician and engineer with Michael Jackson, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. Uh, you mentioned earlier that in around 2002-2003, Michael spoke to you and Brad, uh, and he was talking about moving into films, and he said words to the effect of, I don't want to hear anything else about going on tour. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said that touring caused Michael a lot of stress. Um, so mm-hmm. were you surprised by the decision to embark on the This Is It concerts? And what did you think Michael's attitude towards those concerts was? I, I, I was surprised. Um, and Michael, um, uh, a few weeks before he went and made the announcement, he called me on the phone and uh, we talked for about an hour and a half that day. And I was sitting in the very same room I'm, I'm sitting and talking to you right now. And, and he said almost out of the blue, he goes, you know, he goes, don't you remember how awesome it is? I'm awesome. is not the word he used. I can't remember the word he used, but to, uh, to be on stage in front of like 50,000 people. And, and I said, yeah, I do, you know, and then I went, why is he saying this, you know, and, uh, and then he starts talking about um, playing and touring and, you know, getting that feeling and, and then uh, uh, I go, wow, he's leading up to something, you know, and uh, it, it was interesting because he made it very clear, you know, and we talked about a lot of other things too, but he made it very clear that, you know, he was thinking about touring again. And I was really happy to hear that, um, primarily because there were so many new artists that, in my mind, were pretty much copying him, you know? Um, wearing wearing the, the hat and having four dancers or six or eight and sort of kind of doing MJ, you know? And don't need to mention any names, but there were a lot of them. And, um, and I thought, wow, this will be awesome because he'll come back and show them, you know, who's boss, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and, and I didn't, I had no idea what the plan was. I didn't know. This is before he moved down here to, uh, to LA. So he was still in Vegas at the time and I was going back and forth to Vegas. So this was just one of those calls. I figured it was going to be a little short call of him just saying, Hey, you know, I need you to come back up to Vegas, you know? And it was interesting in that phone call, he talked about all the positives and all the things he loved about touring. And he, and then he said, uh, something very cryptic. He said, he says, the only thing I don't like about touring is all the doctors. And, um, and I think I'll just leave it at that for now. There's more to it, but, uh, uh, it was something I was unaware of, but I am now. And would you say that his his level of enthusiasm was the same throughout, or did it seem to diminish as the concerts got closer? It did not diminish because I I would have regular like little just one on one sessions with him in um, in his dressing room, and I did feel that he was trying to do too much at once. And after the movie was put together, I learned 
he was doing even more than I thought he was. You know, like I didn't know he was all he was at these sessions where they were, you know, making the videos that were going to be on the big, you know, high definition screen. We were going to have the first 3D screen of all time. You know, um, it was it was amazing. You know, um, that show between trying to be. Remember, Michael was an A personality. He was involved in every aspect of that from the songs, the music, the choreography arrangements of everything, uh, all the effects, you know, if there was going to be an elevator or crystal ball or whatever, those were all things that he would be involved in the decision-making process. And, um, so between music, dancing, all the, the, uh, curating of the new video material and then approving of it and final edits and stuff. He was working a lot, you know, and I remember, uh, in his dressing room one time talking to him and I just sat down, I go, I go, you miss your kids, don't you? And he says, yeah. And I said, cause we were like two weeks away from going to, to the UK. I said, well, you know what? I said, this is the hard part. I didn't need to tell him that, but, you know, he, he knew that. But I said, you know, once we get there, we're going to be doing three shows a week. I said, you're going to have so much more time with your kids. And then he got his nice smile on his face, you know, and, and, uh, and, and I, I think it was just, uh, I think he definitely was getting more nervous as we got closer because remember he hadn't toured really since 97, Right. So that's what? 12 years. I don't think he had any doubts, but uh, I just think he felt pressure in that. Knowing Michael and how much attention to detail he paid to things, everything, uh, I, I know he would have loved it had we had an extra two weeks or an extra four weeks to get ready. Well, you have taken credit in the past for the postponement of the first few shows uh, to buy some extra rehearsal time. So what was the thought process behind that? How did that come about? Well, that was pretty much me looking at the calendar. I went into the, the production office and they had a calendar and it said, OK, these days we're at a place called Center Stage. And then we on these days we go to uh, the Forum and then on these days, we go to a Staples Center to rehearse. And then we fly over to the UK. And on these days, we're going to rehearse at Wembley Arena. And then all of a sudden, it says, on this day is our first show at the O2. And so I went, what? I, I mean, because normally you want two, three, four, five days of pr full production rehearsals meaning you run the show, costumes, lighting, everything, in the venue. Especially if you're going to be in a venue on and off for six months, you know. So I went and got Kenny Ortega. I said, hey, Kenny, can you come look at this with me? And so we just walked in, and I go, wouldn't it make sense if we had some actual rehearsals at the O2? before the show and like the light bulb went off, you know, and, and of course, you know, I'm just Michael Prince, you know, I, I'm, I'm really nobody in the grand scheme of things. And Kenny, as soon as he saw that, he looked at me and he 
went over and he talked to, you know, Paul Gongaware and anybody else from AEG that was there. And he goes, guys, uh, we have to have at least, and I, I don't remember if it was three or four days of rehearsal at the O2. And, um, and the only way to do it was to move everything later by, I don't even remember how long it was, three or four days or something like that. So I felt bad later on because i heard stories about people that had tickets for opening night now they had it you know it got bumped to blah blah i'm going like damn but you you don't take somebody like michael jackson or any major artist and spend all this time getting ready for a show and not at least do two nights or three nights in that room and get that sound perfect for that room you just don't move in there set up and play a play a show in front of people that's just you know i don't know who did i don't know who thought of that schedule but you know it felt like somebody didn't really look at the big picture and when we were in uh, cologne you actually said that when you first heard on june 25th that uh something had happened involving michael your first thought was that it was uh, you know a, a stunt or a uh, you know a ploy to yeah. get even more rehearsal time. So, um, would you mind talking us through uh, June twenty fifth through your eyes? Sure. Um, I in fact, it's interesting. I had to transfer a Jackson five uh, tape that a friend of mine uh, uh, got through an auction. We had no idea what was on there. So I went over to a place that does transfers. And uh, when I say transfers, they, they take tape and they bake them if they're really old. And this tape's from 1975. And so we had to bake it. And then we had to transfer it into Pro Tools. And, and this was the friend that called me on the morning of the 25th while I'm driving to the Staples Center. And he called me and said, Michael, I don't know if you know this or not, but they just announced on TMZ that MJ was taken to the hospital in an ambulance. And I went, what? You know, so, I mean, I turned on the news and I thanked him for calling me. And what went through my mind immediately, and if you'd worked around Michael for as many years as I had, you would have thought probably the same thing, that it was like that very first show in 1995 where he was dehydrated he was tired but at the same time he knew he needed two more weeks or wanted two more weeks so my very first thought was wow maybe we're gonna have two more weeks of rehearsals you know and i kept driving i got down to the staples center and um there hadn't been any sort of announcement yet other than what we'd already heard so we all Kenny had us all stand in, in, on the floor of the Staples Center, and, and we all held hands, and he told us what he knew so far, and that was that Michael had been taken to the hospital. And then one of the guys who worked in the crew, his dad had or was a, a preacher, so he said a beautiful prayer. And then we all said a prayer, and then we all went back to work. And he says, okay, everybody, go back to work, and as soon as we hear something, we'll make an announcement. And... I want to say it was probably a half hour later or something like that, that I guess they heard, you know, because I didn't want to watch TV. I was had my headphones on and was working on Pro Tools and 
And they said, okay, everybody come back out to the floor of the Staples Center. We have an announcement to make. And, and that's when, you know, he had us all hold hands again. And, and they made the announcement that Michael had passed away. And wow, it was just like everybody started crying, you know. And um, a lot of hugging, a lot of, I can't believe this is happening. And I, I really felt, I mean, obviously you feel the worst for Michael's kids. But when I saw the young dancers who they hired, who had, this was going to be, this was the biggest thing. I mean, to even be on the stage with Michael Jackson, you know, uh, it, it just took the wind out of everybody, everybody, you know. There were people that went in different rooms, dressing rooms, and lit candles, and many just told stories about Michael, you know, and it was pretty amazing. I kind of walked in and out of several of the rooms, you know, just to sort of, you know, see how everybody was doing, and and like I said, I think I was in shock too because they like they finally had to tell me to pack my stuff up and 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 drive home, you know, which because I you kind of don't want to believe it even after it's on the news. You keep saying, well, no, he's gonna he's gonna come back here later on today or tomorrow. He's got to, you know, and that's sort of how that day ended for me. Very sad. And- you spoke about um, how you tried to keep busy in the days and weeks after it happened um, to kind of distract yourself. So wh- when would you say you properly grieved? Well, it was in stages because we started working on Michael's memorial fairly quickly, it seemed like, you know, and we had all these amazing artists come down and you know, I, I remember the rehearsal the day before. Stevie Wonder, when he did his song, he was crying while he was singing it. You know, and you're you're just realizing how many incredible people thought the world of Michael Jackson and loved him, and um, that helped a little bit. And then taking my family, you know, to a few beautiful spots in in California and just getting out in nature helped a little bit. And then, you know, working on This Is It at first was very difficult because it felt like Michael was alive again. And and then, you know, having a lot of 12-hour days kind of helped. But I think um, it really, I don't know, it, it, things come and go. You know, I think, the, you know, I had to sort of grieve again, but probably a different stage. You know, like I said, when we got done working on, on the movie, This Is It, you know, and, and then thank God I had, you know, at the time, you know, uh, a lovely wife and two children to sort of lean on, you know, and, and it's also was special to me that they knew him and they loved him too. So it was like, it wasn't like they had never met him and I have to go, Oh, he was this great person. I really miss him. I mean, they, they knew him and they missed him too, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and that helped, that helped a lot. And you spoke about how, Michael seemed genuinely enthusiastic and actually the night before he died he was talking to you about this meeting you would have about his vocals and so on um yeah but in the subsequent years obviously there were two court cases a lot of information came uh into the public domain which was not previously known was shocking to fans certainly emails that had been sent back and forth saying that Michael had been slapped um emails that were sent saying 
we need to call an ambulance because he's going to be dead in two days if we don't get him help, so on and so forth. I mean, how much of a surprise was all of that to you to find out after the fact? It, it was a big surprise because I didn't, I didn't know about the emails. You know, on the 24th, when, you know, he and I had that meeting, um, during the day, and the reason we got such a late start rehearsing is Michael sat there and he sat with the video crew that had finally finished, you know, all the edits that he wanted. And he watched all the videos for the whole show, top to bottom, and signed off on them. So, so much stuff was moving forward that day. You know, like all the videos were finally put to bed. All the final music arrangements were done until after that show. I had a few more to do for the next day on the 25th. And then on the 25th, we were going to like have this pretty much the end all be all meeting about, you know, singing, although that could have changed a little bit, you know, over the next two weeks. But it was a the 24th was a real milestone day as far as getting that show from 70 percent to 95 percent. And in terms of the uh, the crew, I mean, you were speaking earlier about Bugsy. It seems like you had quite a good relationship with Bugsy. He wrote one of the key emails that became central to those court cases where he was talking about how much weight Michael had lost and so on. Um, were there conversations going on about concerns over uh, Michael's health or were you kind of kept separate from all of that? I was kept separate from that. And, you know, I did notice Michael looked a little thinner uh, the last couple of weeks. But I also remember talking to Michael at the ranch five years earlier. And he told me that the lighter he is, the easier it is for him to dance. And, you know, he told me that he was sick and tired of drinking these uh food supplements, I forget what it's called, but you drink it to help keep weight on, because Michael had a naturally fast metabolism. He goes, I'm not drinking these things anymore. And this was just not even on the road. This was just at his house. You know, he, he ate fairly healthy most of the time, you know, like salad and chicken and stuff like that. And, um, you know, when he, t like I said, he told me uh, the less he weighed, the easier it was for him to dance. I, I didn't ever see a weak tired, you know, out of it person on stage. I saw someone who was holding back. I saw someone who was holding back both dancing and singing, you know, and, um, and I knew why, uh, he didn't, he already knew the songs. I didn't need to sing them, um, until it was time. And, um, so all that stuff was a surprise to me. You know, the times I met him in his dressing room, he was, he was very coherent. We had very normal conversations. And, um, and like I said, his passing was a, just a huge shock and surprise. And, you know, looking back, I mean, come on, there is no person on earth that could ever think that they could have general anesthesia every night for the next X amount of years. That's, that's not, that's just, that's just not rational thought to me. Um, I, I can only think that he must have really felt that doctors were 
the next level up as far as intelligence and how they can keep you healthy and alive. And, you know, my wife's father was a doctor and they're just regular people. You know, that's why they call it practicing medicine. You know, they're, you never get perfect at it, you know, and I guess at some point Michael believed that maybe he could have medicine uh, like that every night. But wow, I mean, anybody wish, well, I wish somebody would have just said, Michael, you can't do this. You know, you could do this once a month maybe, but there's so many other ways to treat sleep problems. Believe me, I have sleep problems, you know, and uh, when Michael told me he had sleep problems in 2009, I didn't think much of it because I've had sleep problems since I was in high school, you know, and, and some nights I don't sleep at all, you know, but I'll try to sleep again the next day. But I had no idea he, you know, he had ever taken general anesthesia to help sleep, you know, so I was very surprised and shocked. Although it was a surprise and a shock, when you, when you learned what some of your colleagues had witnessed and when it started coming out that AEG had been sending emails back and forth, calling him the freak and um, talking about slapping him and screaming at him and so on, did you come? Did you did you at any time reevaluate your involvement in the film and come to have any second thoughts about whether you'd maybe been been helping to um, improve the image of a company that didn't necessarily? deserve the effort you know uh i i have i have never read those emails i've never really heard about those emails i didn't watch the trial i didn't want to watch the trial because to me there was only one thing that mattered and that was michael had passed away you know and the trial wasn't going to bring him back did i think the doctor was guilty of course i did but i didn't watch the trial I, even the things that you're mentioning now about Michael being slapped, I don't know anything about that. I've never read that. And uh, part of me doesn't want to know anything about that. You know, I do think that this was something that financially Michael desperately needed, but also that AEG realized that as a company, uh, and, and I heard some of their three to five year plan they had for Michael. There were some amazing places he was going to play, amazing events that he was going to be performing at. And it was all jaw dropping and it was going to put Michael back on the map. And it was also going to really help AEG as well. But look at AEG now. I mean, they do, you know, Coachella and and Stagecoach, uh, the Rolling Stones, the uh uh, the, I think they do Roger Waters. They do Paul McCartney. I mean, I think they were sort of already there already. That's why they had uh, the ability to keep writing checks for all the things Michael wanted. I, I didn't know until until after everything was all over. I thought Michael bought that house that he was living in. I thought he bought it. You know, I didn't realize AEG was renting it for him. You know, because that's none of my business. It really isn't, you know, um, and I would never ask Michael that. Um, yeah. I just, uh, I, I assumed that, you know, he bought that house and, or, you know, or that he was renting it. I had no idea AEG was doing that. I knew AEG was paying for 
rehearsals and dancers and salaries and equipment. And if Michael wanted a giant chandelier coming down, that AG paid for that. And, you know, but those are all the startup costs you normally have for a big tour, you know, and that's why they hoped this was going to go three to five years. Talk about that a little bit. The, uh, you mentioned a moment ago the five-year plan. What was it? Well, um, the tour was supposed to last from three to five years, depending on how long Michael wanted to do it. But it went way, way beyond London, you know. And I've probably forgotten more than I could ever remember. But, you know, it involved, um, you know, they'd already talked to the people about having him play at the Super Bowl. They'd already mentioned uh, uh, a place in Japan where he was going to play, a place in actually Australia. Uh, they, I mean, it was all rattled off to me. This was while we were still rehearsing, you know, and I'm just going like, wow, this is awesome, you know. And, uh, and of course, you know, we didn't even get to play one show, which, like I said, to me, that's not the sad. The saddest thing is that, that the kids lost their father. Yeah. That's the saddest thing. Michael Prince, before we um, wrap up with our last few questions about what you're up to these days um, in terms of your career, uh, there's just one one more thing I'd like to ask about the This Is It tour, and it's to do with the song Dangerous. Mm. Uh, that's a song that didn't make it onto the uh, Blu-ray. Mm. Uh, I think it was Travis Payne who said that that's because Michael wouldn't have been happy with um, his own routine, potentially. Um, with that performance, would you be able to explain to us, like, how different was that song to earlier versions? Like, how had it evolved? Because it had evolved a lot over the years. You know, I I would have to actually listen to the audio again and see how much that changed. But it was just going to be bigger and better, you know, and uh, and it was cha- it, it was that was one of the songs that we were getting new changes and making edits literally two to three times a week, wow. you know? And I actually think I got the final version of dangerous the night of the 24th. And I don't think, uh, I don't think we actually rehearsed it that often because it was still a work in progress. Michael would, the dancers had a separate room and I had an assistant named Mike McKnight and amazing guy uh, he was working with the dancers because I couldn't be in two places at one time. Because normally I'd work with the dancers and chop up stuff. And uh, and Michael would usually, well, Travis would work there with the dancers. And then when he thought he had a version ready to present to Michael, they would have Michael come back into there and show it to Michael. And then Michael would, you know, run through it. And I'm not really sure. I know we played the song with the band a few times, but the arrangement kept changing just a little bit, you know, like almost, you know, like I said, two to three times a week. So it wasn't something that I think uh, would have been ready for that, for that film. You know, and remember that film, that was just supposed to be outtakes for the eventual uh, DVD that was going to be filmed the last two nights in, um, in London. (laughs) The last two nights at the O2 were going to be filmed and, All the material you see on that DVD was probably going to be cut down to about 15 or 20 minutes of outtakes and behind the scenes for uh, the, the concert, This Is It. 
Wow. Wow. And our final question uh, for you on Michael Jackson is a question we ask every special guest we have on the show, and we usually compile these answers together into our Christmas specials. I'd like you to answer how you think Michael Jackson should be remembered. Hmm. I just think of him as one of the most talented souls that I, I ever met. And I've worked with a lot of people just rhythmically. His, his rhythm was perfect. His work ethic was insane. I mean, he worked hard. I mean, that's why he had Lavelle uh, up in Vegas in 2008. He just, you know, he said, it's time for me to start dancing again. And LaBelle said Michael was wearing him out. You know, they would, you know, dance for four hours at a time and, you know, sweats running down and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, he, I remember him taking tap lessons up at the ranch just because he wanted to learn, you know, other disciplines. You know, I remember him telling me how much he admired Fred Astaire and hoped that he would be still dancing when he was 80 years old, you know. And um, I remember the speech he gave uh, when we were getting ready to start, this is it. This was a speech just to me, but he said, he goes, I can spend the rest of my life just doing my biggest hits. He goes, I don't want to do that. He goes, I want to keep writing great songs that are relevant, that, you know, people will love and, you know, keep reinventing, you know, who I am. So he didn't want to just sit on his haunches and just do Michael Jackson's greatest hits. And I think that's one of the reasons he didn't do the, uh, the Vegas thing. Cause the whole time we were there, he kept telling me, he kept getting offer after offer after offer from different casinos, you know, to build him anything he wanted to perform in and just get him to stay in Vegas for the rest of his life. You know, and he just wasn't ready to do that yet. Wow. Thank you very much. My pleasure. I am your joy, your best of joy I am the moonlight, you are the spring Our lives are sacred thing You know I always will love you I am forever, I am the one Who came when you fell down I was the only one around When things went hurt Switch 
What's up, everybody? This is Nick, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. Well, that's uh, that's a that's a wrap for our uh, Michael questions. And uh, how about you let us know what you're up to these days? I heard you're uh, still uh, touring with. I think you're touring with Bobby Brown at the moment, aren't you? Yeah, he just had his like second baby in like a little over two years. So this year has been a lot of like little one-offs. I have a gig with him a week from tomorrow um, in Memphis, and then. Uh, got something else coming up, and then some gigs, much, many more gigs next year, I think. Um, and, and they're a lot of fun. It, they're they're not Michael Jackson gigs, but it's it's like great R and B, you know. And yeah. Bobby's like an amazing live performer. He hasn't hit a bad note yet. He loves to talk to the audience in between songs, and he's a master at it, you know. And uh, uh, great, and just really talented band, and it's a lot of fun. And I'm still trying to reinvent myself, you know? I mean, when you work for the same person for over 15 years, it, you sort of get removed from a lot of other people's list of who to call, you know? And uh, I don't know, maybe I need a manager or, or, or an agent or something, but it's slowly, it's slowly coming together, you know? It, uh, and I don't know, I think Damien and James know this, but about a year and a half ago, my, my wife passed away. We've been together for 30 years, and that... You know that coupled with with the MJ thing, I mean that that took some wind out of my sails. I sort of didn't really want to do anything for at least a year. Yeah. You know, but um, I'm starting to feel I'm starting to feel normal again and happy again, and uh, it's a process. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that, and my condolences with you and your family. Oh, thanks. Thanks. We're all we're all getting better, but you know when you know when you've known somebody that long, you'll, there'll always be times when, just like with MJ, there's times when you you know, you just kind of get a little bit, yeah, yeah, a little sad. It's to be expected. I, I had, that, that's what makes us human. Yeah. I had the fortune to meet her just once, and, and she was truly, truly a lovely woman. And you had touched on it a number of times here, but she loved, she adored Michael Jackson. And, and uh, you know, her relationship with Michael was was purely a friendship. And, and she had talked to us just on the side during our conversations about how how her and Michael would sneak away at Neverland and just have one-on-one private discussions. And, and I, I think she played a sort of important role and escape for MJ in those moments. And and certainly Michael had a, a good uh, impact on, on her as well. It was, it was very visible. Yeah. So that puts a smile on my face that, that you remember that. And um, I, I love talking to people that met my wife because it, you know, it still helps me remember her in, a, in a, such a positive light. And I remember coming out of, you know, Brad and I had been working in the dance studio where this recording gear was. And I, I walk out one night, it's like 11 o'clock or 12 at night. And there's Michael and Elisa standing under some light pole somewhere at the ranch. They're just, they've been chatting for, for like an hour. I'm going like, she gets to talk to more than I do. You know what I mean? And she, it was, <laughs> it she, was great. She was, she was telling us about that. And honestly, when we left, your home, uh, everything you shared with us, all those amazing things you had to share with us. The the number one biggest impression um, we left your home was her, and uh, uh, she she's such a kind, sweet, sincere woman, and uh, uh, we are so lucky to have just that one encounter with her, and you're so lucky to have your life. So. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Someone special. Thanks very, thanks very much. And uh, you know, 
I'm really glad that you did get to meet her and uh, and that she did tell you about you know her views on and and speaking to MJ because to me that was as awesome as all the time I spent with him. Yeah. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. Uh, we certainly appreciate it, and uh, the uh, and and the fan base will, the audience will just will adore it. So, well, it's um, been my my honor and my pleasure. And if you ever had any questions at any time, just just let me know. Absolutely. How can fans contact you online? Do you have like a Twitter or? Oh, well, I do have a Twitter. Yeah. Um, ooh, what is it? I think it's the same as my um, my uh, Skype. I I, I want to say it's MD Prince Mix MD. I'll double check I now. I guess I could. I guess I could turn on. Where's my? Oh, there it phone? is. I think it's at Michael Prince MD. Oh, is it really? Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we'll put that I in the show notes. I came out with that name music. <laughs> yeah, you can add add any of those things in there if you want. Where can our audience find the MJ cast? Well, that's uh, an easy one to answer. We're all over the internet. Basically, uh, the hub for all things the MJ cast is themjcast.com. You can reach us on Twitter at twitter.com slash themjcast. We're also on Facebook, Instagram uh, as the MJ cast uh, over at Tumblr on themjcast.tumblr.com. Or we love getting feedback from listeners through emails. So you can get us on themjcast at iCloud.com. Make sure you subscribe to our show as a podcast. You can find us on iTunes if you just search the MJ cast and then you get all your latest Michael Jackson news and discussion and interviews with special guests and collaborators uh, with the King of Pop. Well done. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. <laughs> well done. I see a future for you in broadcast. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. It's uh, it's something we love doing. We put a show. Have you ever heard of the MJ cast before or is the first yeah, time? I, I've, I've listened to part of it with uh, Brad Sundberg. It was oh, very interesting. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. We love, we love long shows, as you can tell, where we can sort of document the whole story around somebody's um, work with, with Michael. And uh, we've done some... Pretty uh, pretty interesting shows. We did one this year that was incredibly fascinating. I love talking to people who are real experts in their field, like um, yourself, obviously. And then also this lady we interviewed co- called Diana Walsack, who was the sculptor of the... Do you, do you remember the big history statue that went along with the promotion of that era? Uh, of course. Yeah, she, uh, she was amazing. She talked to us all about her career in sculpting and the design, how she designed that with Michael and... Yeah, it's a real honor to be wow. able to talk people talk to people such as yourself who worked with him. So, yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm glad there are people like you around because I don't think we'll, the world will ever forget Michael Jackson. His songs will be around as long as there are people with ears, and um, and maybe even longer than that. Uh, but it was wonderful talking to you guys. If you have any more questions or feel we didn't cover anything, just let me know. And um, but we shouldn't do this more than once a week. <laughs> understood (laughs) well everyone thanks so much for listening this is James Charles and Jamin keep Michaeling
Um, did Michael Jackson? What, did he ever mention Donald Trump? They had a sort of a no on-off relationship or something. You never had any any no. stories to share. No, but no. I mean, like I said, you know, unless you you know wanted to ask Michael about something, like I said, he kept all that stuff separate. I mean, I remember walking out of the uh, uh, dance studio one day up at the ranch and going back to to the bungalow, and I saw this beautiful big old helicopter just sitting right there in the grass near the amusement park. And I said to somebody, I said, I said, whose helicopter is that? And he goes, oh, Bill Clinton came up for the day. You know <laughs> So I mean, like, you, you know, you're just going like, what? You know, and uh, he, I mean, he knew a lot of, he knew everybody, you know, he was an amazing it's, person. It's, yeah. It's so funny. But to, to a lot of people, like Michael Jackson was the, what? Yeah. And, and he was your friend. Like, so that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I'm very blessed. The MJ Cast.